Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Well, welcome to Podcasts Like It's 1999. I'm your host, Phyllis and With me today is Karina Longworth. What, I mean, what do I have to say? If you're not listening to um, her podcast, you must remember this. I would just stop this podcast and go listen to that personally. Oh, no. But uh, it is, uh, it's, I mean, it's an honor to have you back. Um, you. To talk about a real <laughs> time capsule, I guess is the best way to describe it. I... So I knew that I wanted to talk about this show at some point. Mm -hmm. I just wasn't sure when. And then you popped up on Twitter and thankfully were like, have you talked about this show? And I was like, well, if Karina wants to talk about it, then let's talk about it. Are you going to uh, talk about more than one episode or is this like your yes. out? We're going to do two. I'm going to do two episodes, this episode with you yeah. and then one other episode with, uh, with, with another guest. But um, I, I wanted to talk to you first for obvious mm -hmm. reasons. But also because um, this episode that you picked feels oddly emblematic and kind of yeah. speaks to the current um, miniseries that you just did um, on 80s sort of erotic cinema and what have you. Yeah, well, that's actually why I started this weird rewatch of Ally <laughs> McBeal that I've been doing, which is that um, I remembered it having like a big impact in the 90s in oh, yeah. terms of the way it dealt with sex and I'm about to start doing erotic nineties. 
And I actually, I think I've decided that I'm going to do an episode trying to kind of draw a straight line from Red Shoe Diaries to Sex in the City going through yeah. Ellie McBeal. Yep, yep. So. Well, that's, that's a perfect uh, segue because I want to kind of, first of all, I want to ask you, you know, did you watch the show when it first aired? Um, was this a show that you watched regularly? Had you seen episodes of it back in the late 90s when it aired? Yeah, I definitely watched all of the first season in real time. Okay. And then I guess I must have watched the second season too, because I have, when I was rewatching season two, I had memories of some of the Ling and Nell episodes, mm-hmm. but I don't know how, because I didn't have a TV when I went to college and re- I basically completely stopped watching television. So it must have been like, yeah. I must have caught up with it over the summer when I was home for the summer or something. I mean, it was sort of ubiquitous for those first two seasons, I would say. I mean, it, it, it kind of, ratings-wise anyway, if that's a barometer of anything, it kind of took a nosedive after about season three, four, five was basically kind of... Right. Well, um, the so, Billy stuff in season three like, is obviously an end of something. Yeah. I mean, I, so I guess the reason that I wanted to ask you sort of is, so you're a teenager watching this show and you know it got tagged with being i mean we, we discussed this a little bit offline but you know this this time magazine cover of ali mcveal being the, the end of feminism which is just an absurd thing to say on any level <laughs> but it did get tagged with sort of this you know single sexy woman thing which then carrie bradshaw kind of continues that the next year and it became sort of this television thing of having these sort of independently minded, sexually oriented, um, I don't want to say like unlikable because I think that's such a stupid terminology, but I think, you know, sort of what I'm getting at, how did that all kind of mix for you as a, as a, you know, a young woman at the time? So I think that this is not what they were going for, but as a 17 year old, I could relate to Ellie McBeal. And I think that- <laughs> indicative of how immature her character is um i felt i remember thinking it felt really refreshing that there was like a lady with a job who was obsessed with boys and that that it was like some kind of truth telling like because like just because you have a job doesn't mean you're not obsessed with boys and i um you know when i was 17 i had had like sort of a first love um, a couple years earlier who I was like now not with. And so I could relate to her going to work and her ex-boyfriend is there and she's just right. pining for her ex-boyfriend. So, you know, I, I guess that character was supposed to be like 25, even though Calista Flockhart was obviously older. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I felt like that show, I, it felt like, I felt like it reflected something that I was feeling as a young woman at 17. Well, it's interesting because it's like, I mean, clearly Ali McBeal is not the first single woman on television. Um, I mean, obviously you've got Mary Tyler Moore years earlier. You've got any number of, you know, of, of female characters. But there was something about how much she wore her emotions on her sleeve, how, how we were, you know, literally getting 
inside her head to see the world the way she was seeing it as psychotic as it might very well have been. Um, there was something I imagine, and again, you know, obviously not seeing it through the lens of a, of a woman, but that must have been a little bit freeing about that, about seeing some someone letting their, for lack of a better way of putting it, their freak flag fly a little bit. I mean, is there, I mean, is there something I- I I wish I had been an adult woman and could tell you what I felt like I was an idiot. I was 17 years old and I had like one experience with love and sex and like, sure. you know, could not sort of see beyond that. Mm-hmm. And I thought that Allie McBeal was telling the truth. So the fact sure. that it was held up as being emblematic of anything for adult women is absolutely insane. Well, so this kind of taps in, so there was, I, I read a, a fair amount of articles before this episode, just to kind of get a sense of, um, these were relatively recent articles. So these are, you know, these are adult women watching this show, trying to get a sense of why this show was the hit that it was. And and AV Club had a really interesting article where they talked about, like, what did David E. Kelly have to say about the plight of 20-something women in the late 90s? And in a weird way, he kind of did have something to say. Sure. I don't think that he took it as seriously as the critics took him to task on. Do you know what I mean? Like, I don't think he was approaching this as an opportunity to sort of deconstruct feminism or anything along those no, lines. No, but I think that as the show went on, it became, he was responding to his critics through the show. Mm-hmm. You know, there's something that happens a couple times in season three where, well, like one of the first episodes with Peter McNichol is that Ali has to defend him because he gets caught hiring a sex worker and then in season three that event is brought up a few times where people are like john you hired a call girl a couple of years ago and he says in both of those episodes in season three i didn't know my character yet so it's like yeah david (laughs) kelly is like absolutely having this meta conversation with the critics he turns billy into a heel and then reveals that he had a brain tumor um (laughs) a lot of things happen it's i mean it's interesting because i feel like you know david kelly you know cuts his teeth on on uh steven bochco shows primarily uh, uh, la law prior to sort of starting his own oeuvre and and i would argue there was probably no bigger TV showrunner in the 90s than, than David E. Kelly. I mean, Chicago Hope, Ally McBeal, The Practice, Picket Fences, Boston Legal, Boston Public. I mean, it was just a plethora of shows. And he's writing the majority of these episodes himself, which is also sort of insane. Yes, um, the credit, the sole credit on like every episode of Ally McBeal. It's nuts. He wrote every episode, long form, long hand on yellow lined notepads. God. <laughs> Um, I mean, it was just, it is truly like some level of, I don't know what, but Mm -hmm. truly, truly impressive. This is 1999. He wins best drama for the practice. He wins best comedy for Ally McBeal, which is the first and last time that's ever happened. I mean, it's, it's, it's a wild moment for this guy. And, and it should also be said too, he's kind of having a bit of a resurgence. Big Little Lies opened up, you know, a whole kind of new thing for him. And he's, you know, he's got the Lincoln lawyer that's on Netflix and doing very well. So he hasn't gone away. It's my point, but, but it is really interesting as to sort of why he was such a big thing. And I think it was the magic realism, the whimsy that he injected into these sort of banal genre shows Mm -hmm. Um, he also made law very accessible and very, you know, 
compelling. Like, I, I mean, you've watched more episodes of this show than I have over the past few months, but I mean, it's procedural in a very, you know, outside of Ali's love life, really procedural on the, on the week to week of it all. But I found the cases each time pretty compelling and had an interesting thing to say. Again, it gets kind of meta because like they, it, most of the cases are about sex. Yes. Um, and then they start like having scenes in the law firm where characters are like, why is it that every case we take is about sexual harassment? Um, but yeah, I mean, they, he is sort of doing, he's, that's where I think he's making his real commentary about culture. Not like the alley stuff. So much of it is surreal and doesn't make sense. Um, you know, most of her, every, every episode, she wants something completely different. There's no consistency at all. But Except it, for love. She wants love. Yeah. But then <laughs> sort, of. sort of, but then it's just, you know, quite complicated. Um, but it does seem like there is a consistent point of view from the case, from case to case. And the point of view is mostly, you know, sexual harassment isn't a thing. Yeah, it does. It does feel, I mean, this is where it's very much a time capsule yeah. in terms of, of the way that uh, gender roles and sexual harassment was viewed in the late 90s, early 2000s is drastically dissimilar to the way that we see it today. Um, it, there's a lot of like, you know, get over yourself kind of stuff going on yeah. in the show, <laughs> which is, I mean, uh, the emblematic of the time. But I, I, I do think, you know, in doing some research, uh, I, I discovered that Bridget Fonda was originally cast, or, or Pete asked her to play Ally McBeal, and she turned it down. Um, I think she would have been great. I think, I think Bridget Fonda is a tremendous uh, actor in her own right. And I do think that there would have been a, a three-dimensionality to her. <laughs> that I'm not entirely convinced Callista Blockhart brings to the role. Callista's great, but she's a little bit, she, she sometimes teeters into cartoon character or caricature okay. when you're longing for something a little bit more substantive. Did you feel that way? Yeah. I mean, I didn't know about Bridget Fonda. I recently watched single white female and um, you know, that's kind of a, a, a great performance and a really interesting movie. And so to imagine that kind of grafted on Ally McBeal is really tantalizing. Um, you know, I think that, I don't think it's Calista Flockhart's fault at all, but I think the character is really often written as a little girl in a big suit. And a short skirt. Yeah. Um, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah I, I do get the, and she is played. Um, I mean, Calista's look is very kind of like big eyes and she's obviously very, very skinny, which was something that was brought up a lot in the, in criticism of the show. Um, she doesn't look like a normal person. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah. So that, and that's really evident when they bring in Portia de Rossi and Lucy Liu in season two, because they do look like adult women. Mm-hmm. And, and it's almost like there's, it's not really a direct plot line, but it seems like we're supposed to think that Calista Flockhart is not beautiful compared to them. And it's like, I don't, I don't really see too much of a gradation between those three women. Um, but I have to, you know, just try to like displace my brain back to the nineties. Right. Um, you know, there, there was so little variation of what was considered beautiful. Mm-hmm. So. I think that, you know, the other thing that I couldn't help, the other person I couldn't help but think about as I was watching this was a little bit of Aaron Sorkin as well. Of course. Um, in terms of, of his female characters um, in terms of them always seeming to be falling down uh, literally <laughs> yeah. um, tripping, tripping over themselves. 
part of that is because of his love for sort of those old screwball comedies um, back in the day. And I think that David E. Kelly also has an adoration for that too, but there is kind of that, you know, um, you know, a, a George Cooker kind of vibe at times with the way that women are perceived, not that they're a punchline necessarily, but they can be funny. And I think their definitions of funny is just very broad. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I think that the, um, I think Allie is, is a unique character on this show, actually. Like the other women are much more self-sufficient and she is generally, um, like there wouldn't be a character that's, I think, as sort of navel gazing and, um, you know, kind of asking for help in the sense, like she's, she's a cry for help in many ways. And there wouldn't be a character like that in those classic comedies. Absolutely. I mean, there's, there's a, there's an independence, I would argue to almost all the women on the show. Um, you know, George and Billy are just so painfully boring, unfortunately. <laughs> just, uh, and, and I, you know, one of my big issues with this rewatch really was, and I, I hate to put it on his shoulders, but Gil Bellows is just not a particularly compelling actor. Yeah. Um, and there's so much put on the Allie and Billy relationship that I just yeah. don't think ever fully takes flight. Yeah, nobody cares. And I guess they all realize that and that's why they kill him off. Sure. Um, I mean, yeah. Because, I mean, I think like Georgia, like there are aspects of her relationship with Allie that are really interesting. Totally. And then Billy is just like this sort of dumb void in between them. Truly. And, and also just like, uh, I mean, this is also emblematic of the 90s, but my God, was everything beige? Like everything was brown <laughs> and beige. So like everything's so aesthetically flat to look at. And again, that's mm-hmm. just the time period. Uh, I feel like everything was beige on Fraser too. Like it just felt like everything was beige. Um, but I, I just feel like um, that doesn't help either. It just, you know... Uh, uh, Fish and and uh, and John Cage are such like larger than life characters. They pop just based on the fact that the performances and the and the lines are so interesting. Billy just has nothing to hold on to. It's yeah. just there's just nothing there. Yeah. Um, until I almost feel sorry until for season three when he becomes like a men's rights guy. <laughs> yeah, it's insane. Yeah. yeah, that whole thing was just bonkers. Yeah, I you know it, it also goes to show too. You know, it, it's it's we're talking about the Robert Downey Jr. of it all for a quick second, just in terms. I of... I haven't watched those episodes yet. I'm okay. I basically is, yeah. I'm about I'm almost done with season three, but I'm really looking forward to getting there. I mean, and this is from Thirty Thousand Feet, so I certainly won't spoil anything for you. But I just think it's fascinating. You know, he's brought onto the show at a real sort of nadir in his career, obviously, dealing with all of his uh, you know, various addictions and what have you. Um, and he is an absolute breath of fresh air to the show. He's a perfect foil to, to Callista. And, and the character is written incredibly well. And, and unfortunately, he falls off the wagon and they have to write him off the show. And it, it really kind of... Um, destroys their plan for season five for the final season of the show, uh, which was that ultimately they were going to get married at the end of season four and season five was going to be about them being married. Mm-hmm. Um, and without him, you know, the show kind of just careens off the rails and, and sort of is sort of done for. But, um, but it's an, I, I, the reason I bring it up is because I think Robert Downey Jr. is a fascinating actor, right? He's a fascinating, you know, uh, person. And it speaks to the definitions of masculinity within this show that a character actor like him could be brought on and be such a force, a wonderful force for 
you know, a different version of masculinity. Yeah. Um, same thing can be said for Peter McNichol and same thing can be said for, for, for fish as well. And I'm sort of curious what your thoughts are on the, on the depictions of masculinity within the show. Yeah. Right yeah, I mean, I think that probably the best character in the show, and I definitely didn't think this when I was 17, but now sure. on it, I think that the Peter McNichol character is the most interesting. Um, and it's just because it's, it's so weird. And, um, and there's so, but it's like, there's so much vulnerability mm-hmm. that he plays. And especially in the scenes with Greg German, where he's like, I mean, like Amazing. they just put so much hateful um dialogue in that guy's mouth but you still believe that these two guys are friends well that's you know i before we i I want to just very quickly just because there might be people listening to this episode that don't know what ally mcbeal is about i want to just explain that the show is set in the fictional uh boston law firm of cage and fish begins with our main character allison marie ally mcbeal didn't know her name was allison marie but that's apparently (laughs) it uh joining the firm co-owned by her old uh law school classmate richard fish played by greg german uh on her first day ally is horrified to find that she will be working alongside her ex-boyfriend billy thomas played by gil bellows whom she's never gotten over to make things worse billy is now married to fellow lawyer Georgia played by Courtney Thorne Smith uh, after recasting and a gun was originally in the uh, pilot oh, wow. an interesting recast um, I think a lot of that had to do with the fact that Fox really wanted a Melrose Placey type show which this is not but then they just cast someone from Melrose Place right. uh, nothing against Anna Gunn who I think is a tremendous actor um, so yeah the show is basically it's a legal drama it focuses on, on, on sort of romantic personal lives of these various people that work at this law firm um, they, they don't handle any murder cases except for the crossover with the practice which is super weird so nuts. <laughs> um but I, so like, all I can't stuff. even remember like what excuse did they make for why like she and that like what's his name like never date again yeah oh they d- i don't know i i they i definitely watched- make out <laughs> but then we never see him again I mean, it is, it's, the crossover is bizarre for so many reasons. I mean, first of all, they're on competing networks. Now, admittedly, both from the same studio, but still, ABC and Fox having a crossover would never happen today, although, <laughs> whatever. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's that, and then tonally, they're just drastically dissimilar shows. Dylan yeah. McDermott showing up on Ally McBeal seems kind of fine, okay, but then Ally McBeal is like a cartoon character yeah. showing up in this like gritty legal drama that doesn't make any sense. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, so I, I want to ask you about, um, the, the, I guess you'd say the fantasy sequences, the magic realism that exists in the show, which I would argue feels like the lasting legacy of the show. One of the lasting legacies of the show, the dancing baby is a thing that haunts people's dreams to this day. (laughs) Yeah. Although much more often than the dancing baby are like, is like her tongue coming out of her mouth. (laughs) So that she can imagine licking a man that she finds attractive. That happens in like 15 episodes. <laughs> she she turns white all the time too. Um, like just like ghost white when she makes a mistake or something like that. Um, yeah, her tongue, the CG on the show, um, I imagine was cutting edge of the, at the time. <laughs> But now just looks absolutely bonkers. Uh, her Imagine like comes the out, CG yeah. department at Ally McBeal is like, I think we got something here. And then they see like the first Star Wars prequel. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing too is you know when a computer generated effect is going to happen because, and this is just, I mean, I don't need to be this person, but back in the day you had a real separation, right? So you could always tell that the background was changing colors just slightly. So something <laughs> was going to happen. Yeah. So it kind of tease off that that's going to happen. But I mean, the show was just the fantasy stuff, the baby stuff 
was a big deal. Yeah. Um, do you think that that stuff, I mean, I do think that it did push television in a weird way, audiences in, in a way to be accepting of things that were a lot more kind of, I don't know, bizarre. Yeah. I think, you know, and I talked in my erotic 80s season about the, the debate over the influence of music videos on movies. And that was mostly about movies like Top Gun and Flashdance. I think Ellie McBeal might show some of the influence of music videos and of MTV because this kind of stuff was absolutely commonplace in in like a narrative music video. And then oftentimes Ellie McBeal becomes a musical. Um, 100%. You know, I mean, even putting aside Vonda Shepard and and her Greek chorus usage, I guess, like, I mean, the main characters are singing and dancing all the time. All the time. It's, I mean, yes, v- Vonda Shepard, what a moment for Vonda Shepard, right? I mean, <laughs> just, I have it's really worth. distinct memories of like around the year 2000 going to use CD stores and there would be seven copies of, you know, Vonda Shepard sings the hits of Ally McBeal. Yeah. I mean, it was, she, I mean, I, she's in the credits. Yeah. <laughs> she is, when there are cast photos of them winning Emmys, she's with the cast. I mean, God bless her. I don't have anything against Vonda Shepard. No, but, but she never spoke like, a line of dialogue on the show. She was always separate. And they, people weren't even like, oh, we're going to go down to the bar. Vonda's playing tonight. Like, they never acknowledge her, interact with her. They never say her name. Yeah. Uh, she's never, she She really is, you, you kind of said it perfectly. I mean, she really is a Greek chorus that exists there as an opportunity to sing covers of songs that speak to what yeah. Allie's going through yeah. as she walks in slow motion down the sound. <laughs> stage at Fox um, <laughs> that's supposed to look like New York and you know it's it's but it works I mean I I know that we're saying all of this kind of derisively but it is surprising to me and maybe it's just because I watch so many episodes but it really does sort of work in a way it's a it, it's a pretty heartfelt show I mean sometimes it goes too far with that stuff but the sincerity is kind of endearing have you watched the Randy Newman episode yet not yet I haven't gotten there either. I was just looking ahead at the Wikipedia description. So apparently there's an episode where it's all new Randy Newman songs. <laughs> <laughs> like that's how big of a deal this show was. I mean, it, so you brought up the, the musical component and I think that I do think that the fantasy and the musical components are speaking to each other, right? Like they very much hand in hand of a show that's inside the head of a person who is sort of living um a fantasy or, 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 or hoping that her, that, that the world can somehow mirror what she's hoping for. But it's not just getting inside her head. It's not like Herman's head because right. she talks about it all the time. She's she does. everybody like I'm hallucinating a dancing baby. And then John says to her, like, oh, I have hallucinations too. And like, they bond over the fact that like, I guess they're mentally ill. This is a show that if, if, if the finale of the show uh, cut to uh, uh, insane asylum, and all the characters were just patients. I'd be like, yeah, no, that tracks. Um, it, it, it is. They are that kooky and that dialed up that it's hard not to feel like it's a commentary on mental illness in some form or another. But then, and then when Billy starts seeing hallucinations and mm-hmm. starts acting as heightened as everybody else, it turns out he has a brain tumor, and he dies from his in brain. A courtroom. Tumor. Yeah. <laughs> so 
I don't, I don't think there's a consistent statement being made about mental illness or illness. I, no, for sure. I wouldn't, I mean, I do think that David E. Kelly has a little bit of, of Ryan Murphy syndrome in the sense of him getting bored with stuff. So he kind of just like ping pongs around. I think it's just a lot more grounded than Ryan Murphy's. I also wonder to what extent things were being focus grouped or, you know, the network was, I mean, I like, I remember there being the way there are recaps on websites. Now there would be reviews of, of almost every episode of big Mm -hmm. shows in the LA times. So I'm sure that there were these, there were meetings about the directions of seasons Based on this I, I would absolutely. I mean, I think that I read there's an oral history that they did uh, for the 20th anniversary back in 2017 um, in the Hollywood Reporter, and uh, the head of the studio and the head of the of the network were talking about the show at the time. And and I, I mean, listen, they didn't know what they had. Um, I, I think that David E. Kelly had to had to push pretty hard for them to give it a fall launch. They were gonna they were trying to punt it to, to the spring um, because they were afraid of it holding up against competition. Obviously, they were proved, David E. Kelly was proven correct, but. I mean, I don't know. Can you imagine a focus group watching this pilot? Like, I don't even know. <laughs> it just seems crazy to me how an audience could even process what was being shown to them. I think that he was able to get away with so much of the weird stuff because at least in the first season, there's a really basic, like, backbone of a love triangle. And, yes, you know, yes. there's this whole thing of, like, like ooh, like, are Allie and Billy going to get back together? Mm-hmm. Um, and that stays pretty consistent almost all the way through the second season to the point where like they do kiss, but don't get back together. You know, yes, I agree with all of that. And, and I also just, this, this, this speaks to your, to your mini series, but for a show that talks about sex as much as this show does, it's quite chaste. Mm-hmm. Like, you never see mo- people do anything. You never, I mean, outside of the car wash episode, which we will yeah. talk about, um, which does feel like a real kind of fulcrum point. But I do think that, you know, kissing is a big deal. You, I mean, the whole relationship with Jesse Martin, she didn't have sex with Jesse Martin. Yeah. It's, okay. Jesse Martin is a fully grown man who's put <laughs> up with dating this this woman for months. Yeah. While, okay. But yeah. how much of that is network racism? That's interesting. Because sure. I think it was groundbreaking enough to have an interracial couple kissing. In 1997, right. there, it wasn't happening a lot. Yeah. And I think there might have been, I don't know, but no, I no, think there might have seems- been sort of behind the scenes conversations, totally. maybe about advertisers, maybe right. with it on the Fox network, which is inherently more conservative, about like, you know, maybe we need to stop this relationship before it goes too far. That's really interesting. I mean, I, I, I think that you're absolutely right. I think that the, you know, the fallout from the kiss between Allie and Billy, you would think that they've been having an affair for months. I mean, it's, it's a kiss that lasts maybe 30 seconds. I'm not saying that Georgia shouldn't be upset, yeah. but I, I'm also just like, it, it gets blown really out of proportion. Yeah. And, and I think that even, you know, the, the fish and ling stuff, which is, is dealt so cartoonishly. I mean, it's, it's crazy to me. They're quote unquote sex scenes, you know, the, the, the candle wax and the. Yeah. You know, but she, really she, it's about two adults not having sexual intercourse for an entire season of television. She sucks on his finger. He like plays <laughs> yeah. with the back of her kneecap. You're just like, Like all of it's just very bizarre to me for such a, a, a a sexualized show. Mm -hmm. It's very cartoonish in the way that it handles sex. 
And I think that's why I related to it when I was 17. (laughs) You know, like these people are doing like what teenagers do, like of, you know, making sexual intercourse this huge thing to build up to. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, it's it's an unreal. I mean, this is you're, you're absolutely right. Ali's perspective of love is so warped by television and movies and music, all the things that are injected into this show. Now, whether or not David E. Kelly is making a commentary on that, I can't speak to, and my guess is he's not. But (laughs) I do think that that's part of what you're talking about, right? Which is, it's the whole, like, I've been watching all these rom-coms, I've been listening to all this romantic music, my knight in shining armor, isn't a great message. (laughs) But it's obviously, it's obviously part of this, you know, cultural backlash, you know, like I just, people act like it was like, you know, how could Nixon have been elected in 1968 in the middle of the sixties? Well, because the sixties were not the sixties. It's like, it's not, and not everybody was a hippie, you know, there was multiple forces crashing into each other. And the same thing was happening in the nineties. You know, like Bush was coming, like, like Fox News was happening where we are now was beginning then. And so, you know, I just, I think that there, there, you see a lot of elements of a feminist backlash in Ally McBeal in this sense of like, you know, but are women who have jobs really happy? They're, I think they might be unfulfilled. You know, I think that probably what they want to do is to have never had sex with anyone, but the first person they had sex with, because all women should do is just find that one true pairing and make babies with them. <laughs> uh, yes, I agree wholeheartedly. And I do feel like, you know, you, you, you bring up sort of the political environment, which I do think is really um, interesting too. You know, 1998, 1999, I mean, they talk, they literally talk about Monica Lewinsky in an episode of Ally McBeal. Um, You know what I mean? They talk about sort of all that, all that's going on, what's, you know, in the, in the sort of ether, if you will. And, And I do think that this is sort of the calm before the storm, right? This is when boomers think that anything is possible, where David E. Kelly can just write about the whimsy that goes on inside the head of a single gal, and yeah. no one knows what's sort of coming down the, down yeah. the pike. They could fuck around, and then they found out. Basically. <laughs> I do think the feminism argument that was sort of thrown at this show was essentially they found the character to be annoying, demeaning to women, specifically regarding professional women because of her perceived flightiness, lack of demonstrated legal knowledge, short (laughs) skirts, and emotional instability. Um, All of those things are true, by the way. Like I don't, I'm not, I, outside of her legal knowledge, she seems to know the law relatively well, but I do think that, you know, the aesthetics of her, of Allie, I kind of get it. I, I could understand why um, she would become a poster child for something she didn't necessarily intend. Um, do you, so do you remember there was sort of this Lara Flynn Boyle thing that happened where there was this moment because both of them were, were being, very skinny. were very skinny. And a lot of people were talking about potential anorexia and what have you. And then they have a cross exchange in an episode of, I think it, I don't know if it's a practice for Alan McBeal. I think it's Alan McBeal where Lara Flynn boils in an elevator or something. And she makes a crack about eating a cookie. And then she makes a crack about how we can share it or something like that. Like there's kind of this interesting thing there. Um, but I'm not convinced that there was ever really a full throated 
pushback necessarily against these accusations of the show? Yeah, I don't know. I, you know, I remember reading something from Courtney Horn Smith saying that one of the reasons why she, she had the opportunity to quit this show to join According to Jim. And <laughs> she, uh, she decided to leave in part because she felt so much pressure to lose weight on Ally McBeal. Um, you know, I, I don't know what any of these people were doing. You know, I don't know what any of their eating habits were or sicknesses they had. I know that I f- was made to feel certainly at that time, like Clista Flockhart had the ideal body and that like wow. everybody else on the show was fat. I mean, that's, wow. that, that see that was what the culture was. That's the message the culture was sending to me. That's really upsetting. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, it's, and especially it's, now uh, when I watch it, there's a, a Thanksgiving episode. I think it's in season three where she's wearing three sweaters and you can still see her clavicles through them. Yeah. Um, it's, it, it mean, doesn't look good to me now. No, 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 <laughs> no. I, I mean, in the, you know, in the aforementioned sex scene in the car wash, I also found myself just not finding it titillating for a myriad of reasons, which we'll get into, but, but her, uh, her body type. And again, I mean, I don't, to your point, I don't know if she was, wasn't eating. I don't want to speak to any of that, but I'll just say that um, it's not a great look and it's not great that it was deemed what women should aspire to. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think also um, in episode 12 of the second season, Ali talks to John Cage about how she had a dream. I had a dream that my face was on the cover of Time Magazine as the face of feminism, um, <laughs> which is kind of, I mean, again, like I do appreciate that the show is at least acknowledging the stuff that's being thrown at it, but the acknowledgement is only kind of half a step. It doesn't feel like it's ever really saying it's not even really pushing back against it. Yeah. It's just sort of being like, yeah, we saw your shit. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Well, it's like the scene and this is a very important scene to my work, but it's like mm. the scene in, in an indecent proposal where a, a side character, a background extra basically is reading Susan Faludi's backlash. Like in <laughs> which Susan Faludi basically says fatal attraction is evil. Um, fatal attraction having been directed by the same director of indecent. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah, it's, I think it's interesting. I mean, David E. Kelly has a quote where he said, I remember being caught off guard because I was never, it was never her intention to put her out there as a role model for anybody or a poster child for a cause. She was just Allie. She was all about her foibles, her strengths and her weaknesses. I didn't think she represented a class of people so much as this one persona. So we were all a little bit thrown. It was a surprise when the Time Magazine was taking this character so seriously. Okay, but I, yeah. maybe he was surprised because he didn't think it through. But yeah. at a time when there were so few female protagonists of shows or movies, of course, people want to like everybody that they're, that they have to stand in for everyone, you know? And I think like now we see this, maybe not with white women, but with shows that center people of color or people with disabilities or queer people, um, you know, if you get the opportunity to have that platform, people want you to speak for them. I couldn't agree with you more. And I, and I do think that it's a, you know, listen, this, this, this quote came from 2017. Maybe if he was asked today, he might be a little bit more um, understanding of the, of the current landscape. But to your point, I think that I never loved the answer of, Oh, we're just having fun. It's, it's, you know, I I think there's something to it. I think we all try to make television shows because we want to have fun and want to entertain people. But to your point, you've got this huge megaphone. Um, You're saying something, whether you're not saying something, you're saying, something so i think that that's uh to your point 
important and people shouldn't be so maybe cavalier about the things that they, uh, that they talk about. But um, to talk about this specific episode of episode 301 titled Car Wash, uh, the synopsis is that Ali has random sex with a man at a car wash only to realize uh, he is the fiance of a client she's agreed to be a bridesmaid for. Uh, also, Renee and Whipper open their own law firm. This episode aired on October 25th, 1999. It was written, shockingly, by David E. Kelly uh, and directed by Billy Dixon, who was also the DP on this episode, which I thought was interesting. He was, I guess he was the episode, like he was the the ongoing producer for direct, uh, director of photography, and I guess they gave him an episode, so he directed this one as well. Um, so right off the bat, I want to ask you about this, uh, this car wash sequence. Um, Total softcore, Cinemax ridiculousness. Yeah. Just, <laughs> do you have thoughts on it? So the, the narrative of this episode, I rewatched it last night after having seen it for the first month ago, and it's such a strange narrative. I mean, yep. n- nothing that happens in it could ever happen in reality, um, <laughs> other than in the reality of Ally McBeal. I mean, the, it opens with her, like very wet walking down the street, but she goes to the office, but it seems to be a Saturday and she's surprised that anybody is there because she thought John Cage was going to the Red Sox game, but he's there. It's, I mean, it feels like it could still be a dream. It feels like the whole thing could be a dream. Well, like any good episode of Ally McBeal, it all feels (laughs) like it could be a fucking dream. Yeah. It's that, so the first of all, the episodes, the, the opening montage is just a whole bunch of some of the grainiest fucking stock footage I've ever seen of, of it's Boston. Terrible. <laughs> it's insane. Uh, so then that happens. And then, as you mentioned, we, we pan up from Allie from her feet upwards, uh, sopping wet, which I don't know if this is supposed to be a metaphor or not, but she is very wet at this moment. And she's walking around. She walks at the office. Um, she looks like she's in a daze as though something's happened to her. Um, and she then confesses to John, uh, played by Peter McNichol, that she had sex with this stranger in a car wash. Couple, couple things. Logistically. Has never seen her with a car before? <laughs> never seen her with a car. No one's ever seen with a car because no one ever walks more than like two blocks within the radius of this show. But she's in her car. Um, Logistically, this is the middle of the day. (laughs) Does that work at the car wash? We'll never know. (laughs) Could have just been a patron. Not really sure. She she says she's not sure if he works there. (laughs) But he was just there with the towels. Like it's insane. So, so he he essentially just gets in her car, and they just start making out. Um, he then they then get out of the car. They proceed to have sex in the middle of the car wash. Now, listen, I've been to a car wash. It is not a sexy environment. It is certainly also, not lit the way it is lit. It's not in lit. There's lots of people around. It's very, I mean, it's, it just doesn't seem like a particularly great place to have sex. Right. So what I want, I don't know. Do you think that David E. Kelly is like making fun of Red Shoe Diary style sex? Or do you think he's trying to do it for real? Well, this episode thematically seems to be a lot about um the perceptions of sex, the perceptions of what is quote unquote good sex, what is bad sex. 
So I do feel like he might be talking about the unrealistic expectations that might be gleaned from a Red Shoe Diaries or some sort of, you know, uh, sexually oriented cinema or television show, I guess, for that matter. Um, But it's all kind of getting lost in the translation a little bit because as is the nature of the show, which you sort of just illustrated, it all feels very dreamlike and so fantasy oriented that there's this whole thing with John and the idea of women fantasizing and, and the fact that he doesn't want Nell to fantasize about anyone else except him. He doesn't want her her to have a fantasy life at all. He doesn't want to have phone with sex with her when he's out of town. And he's very upset that she suggests that they do that off camera. I mean, we never actually, good for Portia de Rossi that she wasn't actually cast in a scene in which she has to try to have phone sex, but. Correct. Correct. It's just, it's a fascinating, there's also this like, because baked into all of this, as is mentioned in the synopsis, she has sex with this guy. She takes on this client. The client um, is trying to force her minister to uh, to do the wedding, but he doesn't want to because he caught her having sex with a man that wasn't her husband. Her reason being because her husband's really bad in bed and she wanted to have one last good sexual experience but then dedicate herself to this man forever. But then Allie says, but this guy's really good at sex. And the fact that he's not good at sex with you, like saying this all out loud is insane. Well, so she interrupts the wedding twice. Twice. First, first, first to tell the bride that, sorry, I fucked your fiance last week. Then when they decide to get married anyway, she interrupts it a second time to say, okay, what the thing I didn't tell you before is that when we fucked in the car wash, it was good. It was good sex. And so you guys aren't having good sex. What she says, which is crazy, is he must be lying to you. Yeah. What does that mean? She's convinced that he's using her for her money. Uh Uh-huh. And that he is purposefully being bad at sex with like, it doesn't, it doesn't make any, doesn't sense. Make any sense. Like, I mean, it's, it's, if you're going to use crazy. somebody, if, if you work at a car wash and you're going to use an heiress for her money, wouldn't she want to be good at sex? To keep her and to yeah. like, yeah, yes, yes. Makes, it makes no sense. It, it's, 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 it's illogical. I don't know why we're even <laughs> saying it. Makes no sense. It's Ally McBeal, but. Well, yes, no, sure. I mean, the show, I guess the reason I'm kind of, drilling down on this is because I do think that this show generally speaking um, is kind of a straight line narrative. You know what I mean? Like it usually a leads to B leads to C and it all kind of makes sense. This episode seems very um, season premiere. We want to get tongues wagging. We're going to do kind of some crazy antique yeah. stuff that in a weird way kind of doesn't feel like the show. I'm sure there was a promo that was like, the wettest episode of Ally McBeal ever, you know? Yeah, like, I mean, I can absolutely. See it on Fox. Like, there's no question that there, there were pop flashes to this car wash scene and they wanted to get people to show up. I would also say, too, having just watched season two, it kind of ends on a bit of a shrug. Like, it doesn't end in a way that made you feel like, I can't wait to see what Allie gets up to next season. Mm -hmm. So it's possible that they were like, can we get a kick in the ass at the top of the season that will kind of feel exciting? And then the next episode, Calista Flockhart and Lucy Liu kiss. So, like, yeah, they definitely were opening with a bang. That I, You know, so I do think that there's part of that 
mixed into it. But I also feel like the show is kind of, this episode is saying something about, I guess, the perception of sex and what we look for in a sexual relationship. I mean, the stuff that I think is interesting, which is like really half formed, if it's commentary at all, is about male fragility, about female sexuality. Um, It's the stuff about John being like, I'm very troubled that women around me are taking pleasure in sex in ways that I don't approve of. Um, And then, you know, it's, so I think that stuff is, that stuff is consistent and interesting, but it doesn't seem like it's the most fully formed stuff in the episode. I, I agree with you. It's, it, it is interesting. It is not fully formed. And it, it's interesting for a bunch of reasons. It's interesting because the John and, and now relationship is actually a, a somewhat fascinating one. Like it does feel as though um, David E. Kelly and his writers are sort of digging into the notions of alpha, beta, male, relationships and and you know why would a woman this beautiful want to be with a guy this you know generic or whatever you want to say about him um but but at the same time you see his alphaness kind of manifesting itself from time to time especially in that scene where you're just like and even earlier where like they don't have sex because he doesn't know how to have essentially how to have sex with her he doesn't seem he can't find his mojo and then Barry White comes into the equation. Um, It's all, it's all interesting. He doesn't, he, isn't it that he kind of like loses his sexual confidence because she becomes sexually confident because she's saying like, she's, she's the one who has proposed having phone sex and that turns him Mm -hmm. off. And, you know, I mean, I don't know. I just, I feel like that's a very real sort of dynamic from the nineties. Like a lot of Uh my kind of, first experiences with men like in the late 90s had dynamics like that where I would get confident often from looking at strong women in popular mm-hmm. culture to you know make a proposal of something mm-hmm. I wanted and that would turn men off because just the you know that there was this 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 thing I think in culture of like of course you want like sexy women but you want to be able to choose them and you want to be able to you know, control control Yeah, 100%. I, I think that even just, John goes to Ali at one point and he's talking to her in this episode and he asks, if a woman doesn't love the man, can the sex be good? And you're just like, what are you living on, dude? Like, I mean, come on. Right. <laughs> and I mean, that yeah. is really is how infantile and kind of embryonic cultural conversation about female pleasure was and that's one of the reasons why sex in the city it becomes as groundbreaking as it is because this is where we were yep well it's you know and then that show gets you know gets tagged with the whole slut shaming nonsense that that you know uh sort of but but i think that this is you know ali walked so carrie could run if you if you want to kind of make that analogy i think there is something there of needing um it was so important to have this conversation. And I appreciate that David E. Kelly wanted to even dip his toes into the water, I guess. Um, He deserves some credit for that. But at the same time, it's just shocking to think that that's where we were. Yeah. (laughs) And I mean, don't even get me started on the fact that we haven't made that much growth. (laughs) Of course, no. But I mean, I think that seeing this kind of stuff in this 
you know, very primetime mainstream show how also helps to, you know, put the Monica Lewinsky stuff into a different focus, you know, being able to see both of those kinds of things in hindsight. Absolutely. I mean, I, I think that it's, I mean, the John character is, you know, to, to, to piggyback on your point earlier is perhaps the most fascinating male character on the show because of the kind of gamut that he, that he covers. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't really go particularly deep in all these issues, but there's a spectrum of things that, that his character is grappling with, which I think is interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I think that if I remember correctly, is it in the third season where, is he spanking Nell or is she spanking yeah. him? It's, I can't remember if it's at like end of second season or okay. early third season, but it basically, you know, she's, I think she's talking to Lucy Liu in her office and, you know, she's saying, well, he, like this guy likes to touch my knee and, um, is that weird? And, um, Nell says, well, you know, I mean, people like different things. Sometimes I fantasize about getting spanked. And it like John is walking past her office as she says that. And so later in the episode, they're in bed and he like whips out a hairbrush and starts spanking her. And she gets very upset. And like she doesn't like it. She doesn't like it. And is (laughs) it's basically like, like, how dare you get out, kicks him out. And then when they finally have a conversation about it, her point of view, if I remember correctly, is like, yes, sometimes I fantasize about this thing, but I would never want to do anything I fantasize in real life. Yes, it's very strange. I am perplexed by what, <laughs> the, what was the point then? I mean, this, I guess this is this back sort of what we were saying, which is that like David E. Kelly's kind of one foot in, one foot out, right? Like he's kind of dipping his toe into these things because he wants the joke and he wants to kind of like put it out there, but he doesn't really want to grapple with what he's actually saying. No, and that's what the culture does all the time too, is, you know, like tease that, you know, there could be sexual variety or sexual perversion or whatever, sexual variance, but then always come back to the mean of one man, one woman being the only norm. Yeah, I mean, you can even see it with Fish's character too, like the whole Waddle thing, which is his love of sort of uh, women, the skin under their neck or chin. Mm-hmm. Which at uh, first is defined as being only like sagging skin of older women, but then somehow he's like, oh, I love your Waddle, Lucy Lou, at age 27. Of which she has none. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah, it's his character really does speak to sort of what you're just saying, which is that like there, there, he seems like a bit of a pervert. He seems like a bit of a guy who like likes to kind of do weird things. I don't say that with judgment, let your freak flag fly. Um, but when push comes to shove, you know, they, they go away from the Diane Cannon storyline relatively quickly. And his next relationship is with a smoking hot, <laughs> you know, Lucy Liu, who is probably in yeah. her late 20s at this time. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's a purely like, the, his whole storyline is when are we going to have sex? Like, yeah. I'm done with all this preamble bullshit. Like, when are we going to do this? Uh, which I think is funny, I guess, but my God, do they milk it? I mean, they go, yeah. it goes on forever. It's the same thing every, every, every episode for 20 episodes. Because they did 25 episodes a season. Yeah. Crazy. Crazy times. <laughs> it, 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 is, it is really interesting. I, so then, on, just for a brief second, we have this other storyline. I don't even really think you can call it a storyline. It's really a, barely a runner. It has like three beats where Renee is opening up her, her own law firm. Um, 
which seems to kind of come completely out of nowhere. She never seems to show any aspirations of doing this. But anyway, she opens up her own law firm. They must have her... lost the set where she used to work or something. <laughs> Probably. Um, Whipper, this judge who used to have a relationship with Fish, decides she's going to be her, her partner. And they do a series of interviews with men where they take off all their clothes and they, dance so they, to they... Smash Mouth. <laughs> Yeah, so the two women are like, well, we're going to objectify ourselves to get clients. So for when women are going to be our clients, we need some hot man candy. (laughs) It's it's ridiculous. It's so bad. You know, Renee is like a character that the show, I mean, this is something that's kind of pissed me off in the rewatch where it's like, you know, they, they have... A, a white woman is the main character of the show. Her best friend is this black woman, but she's only in about half the episodes. And usually she's just there to like give Allie advice in one scene. She very rarely has any kind of plot line at all. And as I get deeper into season three, it seems like, I don't know if she's being written off the show, but she's just not around at all. Yeah. I mean, they, they she is, purely there so that Allie can say things to someone else and we can hear her thoughts. It's, it's a lot of their, their scenes have no subtext. There's really very little going on. I do vaguely remember the episode where Renee like beats the shit out of uh, Isaiah Washington, which was fun. Yeah. Um, She has a, like a date rape plot line with Isaiah Washington. And then there's one other sort of romance thing where she hooks up with an old boyfriend who's now married. But I think those are both in season one and then just they do nothing else with her other than have her like be at home in a robe drinking tea when Allie gets home upset about something. Yeah, I mean, I, I would argue that, that this was emblematic of the time, too. I mean, mm-hmm. one, of my, one of my bigger beefs with Felicity is the same thing, where Elena's character is just sort of yeah. there. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, it's unfortunate that it seems like that felt, I guess, like... Well, we we want to have more people of of you know the spectrum, yeah. Um, but it, it it just there's just they don't have anything to do with with Renee's character really. Um, yeah. I, I do love at the wedding. Ling loves the fact that the wedding is a shit show, yeah. um, and she has this line where she says, "Ali was feeling upstaged by the bride, and she saw an opportunity to make it about her," uh-huh. which I do think is so the show. And I know that that's. Uh-huh. I mean, that's emblematic of television, which is if you know your show is called Ali McBeal. It's going to be yeah. about Allie all yeah, the time. Yeah, Frasier does that too. <laughs> I mean, Sex and the City does that too. I mean, yeah. Carrie is just constantly making it yeah. about herself. Yeah. It's, and, I, and I understand it. I, I, it's, just, it's sort of just what it is. But speaking of an episode, this episode feels hastily put together. Let's put it that way. Because I feel like more times than not, um, you know, David E. Kelly is kind of a Swiss watch. You know what I mean? It's, it's each character has their thing. They learn something by the end of the episode. The, the sort of the button for John at the end of this episode is Elaine overhearing a conversation with Nell and then going into the unisex bathroom, which we need to have a larger conversation about the bathroom in a second. But she goes into the bathroom, calls him a hot little biscuit and starts like trying to get his mojo up so that he can go and, and have sex with, with Nell why? I mean, completely unmotivated. Why does Elaine choose this? Choose? I don't get it. I don't understand. I think it's actually. I think she actually does this again in another episode, and <laughs> and, and in that one, she explicitly like they get walked in on by Allie or someone, uh-huh. and in that one, she explicitly says, "I'm his fluffer." <laughs> oh my she god! Terminology of porn. 
<laughs> doing in the office, in the office bathroom in plain view with her boss. Um, well, now I kind of weirdly respect it a little bit more <laughs> because like, at least they go back to the wet. It feels completely out of nowhere yeah. in this episode, mm-hmm. other than the fact that, you know, there's only so much time left in the episode. We got to wrap this thing up pretty quickly. Elaine can just do this thing and it'll all work itself out. Um, her then deciding to be his fluffer is extreme and I mean, <laughs> something. Yeah. Um, I want to talk about the bathroom for a second. Right. Which was a huge yeah. cultural deal. An enormous cultural deal. Uh, one that, you know, in the world we live in now where apparently, you know, a whole portion of this country is against any number of trans people using bathrooms and any number of things. Surprised we haven't had the Ally McBeal conversation again. Well, yeah, because now, uh, yeah, exactly that is that now a unisex bathroom would mean something different than it did on this show. On this show, it meant like, hey, the bathroom's a sexy place for us to have private conversations that are inevitably overheard by somebody in a toilet stall who has their feet up because they're eavesdropping. I mean, yes. Also, a bathroom is not a social environment. I mean, I'm not a woman. I know that that women tend to sometimes congregate in bathrooms. I don't want to speak in generalities, but I know that that is sometimes the case. Yeah. Um, And I think that that's probably a little bit of where this is coming from for for David E. Kelly. Uh, But my God, does this go way too far in this show? Like, it's still a place where people do bodily functions. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, But, you know, I mean, it just becomes this, like, device for the show. You know, it's Mm -hmm. like an easy way to have people overhear things or walk in on things and misunderstand them. Right. Um, for sure and so and dance you know, and sing yeah there's a lot of there's a lot of like various people looking at themselves in the mirror imagining music is happening and feeling some kind of like you know sexual swell with inside them while looking in the mirror right but also you'll have like billy and georgia fucking in a stall at one point you'll i still don't understand this dismount nonsense no i never understood that and then there was the whole thing where they flushed his frog down the toilet. <laughs> Best not to go into it, I think. <laughs> it's, I mean, it's, it's one of those things where I just, I very often as I'm watching the show, think about what it's like to be in the writer's room on a show like this, where it feels was like all the writer's room? There was a writer's room. Uh, he, he, so from, from the research that I've done and from the writers I've spoken to, I think he used a writer's room similarly to the way that Sorkin sort of did, which is kind of a think tank where people would come up with ideas for episodes um, and then he'd go off and write it. Right. Or they'd give a draft and then he would go off and rewrite it or something to that effect. Um, which is why I think some people take some umbrage with his sole writing credits sometimes. But uh, I'm not in the WGA arbitration business, so I don't want to speak to that. But I do think that, um, but but back to sort of my initial point, which is like, all bets are off, right? You can say anything in this room and it'll probably get on television. Like I just, it's flushing frogs down the toilet, dismounts, uh, remote controls to flush toilets. And and it's just, it's it's bizarre. Right. <laughs> anyway. Uh, it's it, it, in a car wash. <laughs> 
<laughs> yes, sex and car wash. It, it is just, it is whatever you want it to be, this show can be. Um, there's a bunch of uh, really interesting articles that I read, and I wanted to read a quick um, quote from one of them. Mm-hmm. Um, 20 years later, Ally Meepil stands as an anomaly, a show defined as much by the talk it stirred up in the real world as by the things that happen in its own heightened reality. But a second look shows Kelly really tried to stretch within its small screen boundaries. He's the guy famously who pushed Rosalind down the elevator shaft in LA Law, after all. Ally Meepil bridged the gap between TV genres, hearkening back to the 80s dramedies like The Days and Nights of Molly Dodd and Moonlighting, while setting the stage for modern day category busting like... Uh, uh, crazy ex-girlfriend and girls uh, whether Ali was on an insane uh, was an insane figment of a male writer's imagination or a mouthpiece for her generation depends on how you look at it I kind of wanted to get your thoughts on just this idea of because it speaks to obviously to the miniseries that you're talking about but but you know it does feel like a stopgap a little bit to where we are today and how much farther it was pushing it from the 80s but do you, do you feel that way you know, I actually watched the pilot of Days and Nights of Molly Dodd recently. It's on YouTube. Um, it's an interesting show. It de- definitely is like not, doesn't have the flights of fancy that this does, which Moonlighting did. Um, I think Moonlighting is an infinitely better show than Ally McBeal, but that might just be my preference. Um, I think Moonlighting was able to kind of handle legitimate melancholy, yeah. which I don't think is something that is ever successfully done on Ally McBeal. But I think that drawing the line kind of from Moonlighting to um, Crazy Ex-Girlfriend and putting Ally McBeal in between there makes sense. Yeah, it's, you know, I think that one of the reasons Moonlighting is, you know, perhaps a better show is it's also just, it's just got a smaller cast. I mean, it's, this has such an unwieldy amount of characters to feed that on some level, um, you know, a two-hander, is always just going to be, you know, and the banter was so great on that show and the casting of the two of them was so great. But I, but I do think um, those three shows make sense together. I think also, I mean, there's a Walter Mitty-ness almost to, to Ally McBeal, mm-hmm. you know, in this sort of visions of, of um, a better world maybe, or a world that seems more, uh, I mean, certainly more whimsical. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I think that, I think there's something there um, I, I don't know. I, 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 it's just, it's really fascinating to think about where we started this episode in terms of a, a female viewer. Um, there's a quote here. Um, my friend and I who were watching together solemnly nodded in agreement. Where else were we going? Where else were women like myself going to find someone on TV who seemed to embody their own doubts and insecurities, not on Melrose Place, uh, not on NBC's slew of female-driven sitcoms like Carolyn in the City, Suddenly Susan of Veronica's Closet, which all seemed tiny in comparison to Flockhart's openly emotional alley. I mean, do you think there's something to that? As a woman, do you find yourself... I mean, I, again, I, I don't mean to say, keep saying, like, as a woman, but truly, right. I, you know... Well, uh, I mean, I don't know that it's... Opinion. I don't know that... I don't know that you can... It would be fair to have those kinds of expectations of a sitcom. And Ally McBeal is certainly... Um, whether... David E. Kelly was trying to make larger comments about women or feminism or the culture or not. It certainly has more ambitions than suddenly Susan in terms of saying something about human beings. Um, You know, I mean, as I said, like, I, I think that I felt like it was tapping into something that I was feeling and that felt very fresh when I was 17. Um, And 
I really can't speak to whether adult women like should have felt that way or did feel that way, but obviously it, it did touch a nerve in the culture and, and started these conversations in a way where I just don't know if a network show would do now. I mean, it should be said they're trying to reboot Ally McBeal. Oh, really? Um, 20th is trying to reboot it. Um, I, I believe that it, it'll, from what I've read, it might have a diverse component to it and it would not perhaps have Callista Flockhart actually involved in it. Mm-hmm. I know that David E. Kelly has been very outspoken saying if there's a reboot, it should be a female writer and I shouldn't be the person to do it. Yeah. Uh, I, We'll still cash the checks, but uh, <laughs> the female writers should write it. Um, and I think that there's something, I think he's right in, in saying that. Um, you know, that, it should also be said, though, and, and I, David E. Kelly does write female characters well. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that Big Little Lies, despite any, you know, issues that you might have with that show, those female characters are exceedingly well written. They feel as though they have their own sort of, um, they're just, they're, they're, specific. There's a specific voice to each of those characters. Um, so I am certainly not saying that David E. Kelly can't write women or that women should only write women, but I do think that a reboot of this show today, don't know what that looks like. Can't really tell you that that's something that, but I don't know. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I, it would, yeah, it would be interesting to see how that, you know, the, especially all of the conversations about sexual harassment. Mm-hmm. Um, oh yeah. So I, yeah, I'd be, I'd, I'd watch an episode. <laughs> I, I also, I'm curious as to your thoughts on, you know, we don't have any legal dramas on television anymore, really. Mm-hmm. Um, we, I mean, there's three law and orders fight. on. The Good Fight, sure. Um, I think The Good Wife was probably the last real kind of um, long lasting broadcast yeah, uh, legal drama. sort of thing. Yeah. yeah. And I'm, I'm, you know, they tried to reboot uh, LA Law just recently um, and that didn't go forward. And I do wonder whether or not the only way we're going to get America to pay attention to a legal drama is if there's a dancing baby involved. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm, just, I'm just saying. Yeah, I thought what you were going to say is if it's like basically about people getting canceled. Well, like, that's if, it, too, yeah. if it's about like sexual cancel culture and if it finds oh, a way to thread the needle where conservatives think it's speaking to them mm-hmm, and people mm-hmm. on the left think it's speaking to them, mm-hmm. you know, I think that there could be something there. Yeah. I mean, listen, I don't, I don't really know what, obviously what the take is. I, I'm not, it's, all I'll say is that my roommate had never seen an episode of Ally McBeal in her life. Um, you know, she's in her early thirties. Uh, I played an episode for her and she literally was like, what the hell is this? Yeah. How is this ever a thing? You know what I mean? Like it was just, it is a, it's a really gonzo show. Um, and I think that, you know, the only times that you're seeing stuff like this today is probably in a, in a Brian Fuller type situation of which I'm a huge fan, but like, full on fantasy, right? Like really wrapping your arms around the fantastical. Um, I I don't know. I also think you sort of talked about how, you know, you were 17 when the show was on, I was 18 or 19 when this show was on. Um, You know, I, I I enjoyed watching it, but my parents loved it. So like, it definitely feels like there was a generational thing going on that this show oddly existed in a universe where, you know, someone in their late teens, early twenties is enjoying it. And also someone in their, you know, thirties or forties is enjoying it, which is rare to say the least. Yeah, totally. Although my dad 
you know, I watched like Night on Toronto with my dad, like, and he was really oh, that's awesome. I love that. <laughs> my dad uh, actually introduced me to publicity. Really? Yeah, because like I said, I didn't have TV in college. And so it right. premiered, Felicity and Gilmore Girls, I think, both premiered my first year of college. And so I went away and came back and my dad was watching both of them <laughs> and introduced me to both of them. Your dad sounds amazing. <laughs> Dad's just a big WB or, fan. Or maybe he was just like being creepy about young women. I have no idea. But... <laughs> Listen, you said that. I'm, I'm, I'm <laughs> not going on the record about that. Uh, I, I do sort of want to ask you just in terms of you're, you're, you're nearing the end of season three is what you're watching right now. Yeah. Yeah. Do I you... just, I just watched Billy die. Didn't he have like blonde hair at one point too? Yeah. So he, he does this crazy heel turn in season three where he literally goes to a group for male chauvinists, like a support group for male chauvinists. And he decides that he doesn't want to get help with his problem. Like he wants to own being a male chauvinist. So he bleaches his hair blonde. <laughs> he and Georgia break up mostly because he makes out with Farrah Fawcett. Um, but she also has like a fling with Allie's dad who she meets at a bar. And then we find out two episodes later that he's Allie's dad when they're all at Thanksgiving together. And then after this happens, Billy starts, he hires like half a dozen girls, like who are, look like they're from a Robert Palmer video to follow him around. And they're called the Billy girls. And anytime anybody asks him about it, he says, it's a look, which is very funny. (laughs) And then all of a sudden he starts hallucinating and he's like, wow, Allie, like you see stuff. Now I'm seeing stuff. And then he finds out he has a brain tumor. And then he dies. Yeah. And so it's like, he really changes. Like he goes from being like the most milk toast to then in season two being like, I've decided that I'm, I am in love with you, Allie. So like, let's, let's, let me just like end my marriage and let's get together. And then like they hang out with Tracy Ullman playing a shrink and decide not to do that. And then, in season three, he does this crazy heel turn. And I, I guess like they knew that they were going to write him off the show. And so yeah. they were just, you know, figuring out a way to make him like less sympathetic or make the audience stop caring about him and Allie, which like, guys, he didn't have to work that hard. Um, but it is really interesting, especially because like the stuff he's saying is men's rights. You know, it's, it's that thing that's happening in the culture now. And he's saying it in 1988, 1998, 1999. It's pretty fascinating. I mean, the, the show was on the tip of the spear in a lot of ways, which I do think is interesting. Billy shows up as like a force ghost at the end, I believe. Like, <laughs> like a, a whole, like, no. So you've that to look forward to. Oh, good. Um, but so I, I, to, to, to wrap up and to sort of uh, connect to your, to your miniseries, I want to ask you, what do you think is, I don't want to say the best, but perhaps the most interesting, the most compelling depiction of sex on television like do you feel that it was a series that that did it has done it is doing it really well gosh i don't know that's a tough question you (laughs) know i mean you on the spot well i think different shows do different things well right right you know i mean i think there there was i don't think that there are many shows that do character real realism better than mad men did and so there's certainly some aspects of sexuality that that show handled really well. Um, yeah, I don't know. It'd be. Do you think that? Do you think Sex and the City depicted sex? In, I think it was a healthy depiction of it, in the yeah. sense of of being sort of so open about it. But you know, I think that when 
the goal of that show seemed to be to show sexual variety and types of relationships and mm-hmm. making them all seem relatively normalized. I think sure. that was where it was sort of hitting its sweet spot. In the last couple of seasons where it's sort of more concerned with finding a partner for everyone, um, then it becomes a little bit less interesting to me. I I completely agree with you. And I I would also argue feels as though it's negating its premise a little bit. Like, Mm -hmm. I think that, you know, I've often said that I think that, you know, Carrie should have, end, should have ended up alone. She wasn't a person that seems built for relationships necessarily. Um, you know, she's alone now since uh, the Peloton killed him. But I do think that uh, <laughs> I do think that the show starts from a place of being about sexual independence, about being you know confident and an independent woman, um, and the pleasures uh, emotionally and physically that you can get from sex. Um, and then it becomes just another. How do we? you know, give everybody a guy to shock up with. It's a little unfortunate. Yeah. Yeah. I, I do think it's, it's, it's interesting. I, you know, I, I also, on this, on this wavelength, I think it's worth noting that the shows that try to sort of be about sex, you know, a show, the show that comes to mind is tell me you love me that it, the, the one season, never saw show, that. which is very explicit. Um, and is definitely trying to grapple with sex, but it was so depressing <laughs> that it was just like, so I just feel as though there's this, there's a push and pull that comes with it because this country seems to be so um, puritanical is really kind of the only other word that comes to mind, which is. Yeah, just I, think to that's, I think that's the baseline. Like puritanism is the baseline. And sometimes we go, you know, deviate from the baseline and then kind of come back. It's all a pendulum swing. Uh, You know, I think that, I think girls definitely captured some authentic sexuality. Um, Not, you know, obviously very white, (laughs) not authentic to everyone's experience, but authentic to a certain New York white 20 something experience. Straight. Yeah, I mean, that was definitely a, um, you know, I think so much of this, and it does speak to how me feel as well, you know, the, the whole body image, body consciousness, um, you know, one of the things that I think is wonderful about Lena Dunham is the embracing of the way she looks and loving her body in, in every, in its you know, myriad of forms. And I think that girls tries to do that to some degree or another as well about sort of being comfortable with, with um, you know, just, just different types of sex. I, I think that this show, um, as as silly and as cartoonish as it is, has its heart and its head in the right place based on the time that it existed, I think is the best yeah. way to kind of uh, categorize it. Um, and surprisingly um, important in the kind of arc of, of sex on television, which is not something I ever thought I would say. Yeah. But it, is, it does feel that that's the case. Yeah, I mean, I think that I'm still trying to figure out, you know, what I'm ultimately going to say, but I do think it is like this crucial stopover between something like Red Shoe Diaries, which is the sexual revolution in a nutshell, in that it's men saying like, we care about what women want. And (laughs) this is a show about what women fantasize about. And what women fantasize about is getting fucked in a car wash. You know, I mean, like that's, that's a very Red Shoe Diaries thing. And so- For that to be like the centerpiece of, of this Allie McBeal episode where it's like part of the episode is about men being like, like it never would have occurred to me that what you want is to get fucked by a stranger in a car wash. Like, and having to confront this, it does feel like the place where you have to get to before you get to sex in the city. 
A hundred percent. And I, I mean, I think it should be said too, you know, Ally McBeal is ostensibly a comedy. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sex and City is ostensibly, is, a, is an overt comedy, right? Yeah. So, so they're kind of taking the piss out of everything, which I think is a bit of a cover for, you know, the puritanical stuff that we're talking about, right? Which is like, they're, they're, it's all kind of done in such a laissez-faire kind of silly way that it's almost like, don't take it too seriously. And I'm not, I'm not saying that sex should be taken too seriously or not, but to your point, to get from Red Shoe Diaries to Sex and the City <laughs> feels like a step backwards in mm-hmm. terms of like really grappling with the idea of sex. Instead, we're just kind of, isn't it funny? Right. Type of thing. You know? I need to kind of take inventory of the other shows that I haven't thought of from the 90s, yeah, like sure. on Cinemax or, you know, obviously I have to take a look at real sex. And, um, you know, was stuff. what what was it like Mind of the Married Man? Mm-hmm. Was that in that was the 90s HBO? or was that later? Yeah. That was in the 90s as well. Yeah. yeah. I vaguely I mean, remember I th- that. I think that it's, it is interesting that... I mean, it just feels like we just don't see that much of it anymore. It's it's very strange. I mean, you've, we've talked we talked about this a little bit in, uh, on Twitter and what have you, but I do think it is fascinating. The complete kind of it's gone, right? Erotic movies, for all intents and purposes, kind of don't exist anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I I kind of thought that that Fifty Shades of Grey was going to give a goose to that stuff, but it just kind of never really happened. Mm-hmm. Um, and I and it's just kind of fascinating to me. I mean, yes, there's still a fair amount of it on on you know, some streamers and, and and cable networks, but I don't know. I just I'm, I'm kind of curious as to is it that people don't want to watch it anymore? Do you think it's it's an audience thing? Do you think it's just why do you think it's just disappeared? I think there's a lot of reasons. I mean, I think that Hollywood does not have any incentive to do anything that hasn't made money for them recently. Right. Um, and so there is obviously like no recent precedent of an adult film or a film about adults having sex, um, that has made money. Um, and obviously deep water didn't change that. And it doesn't look like, um, you know, the Marilyn Monroe film Blonde also starring Anna de Armas has been rated NC-17, but it doesn't look like Netflix is going to give it a theatrical release. So like, what does that even mean that it was rated NC-17? Um, do you think that had the, the Ben Affleck relationship with Anna not imploded on itself, does that movie get a theatrical release or because a lot of people thought it was dumb because they just didn't want it to oppress Junket with right. them. So I, like, I don't know how, ex- like how explicit I should be about this because I, I okay. had a conversation. I, I knew in, I want to say May, 2021, that mm-hmm. Disney was trying to get rid of it. They were trying to sell it because they didn't want to release it. And I, um, my sense is that they just didn't know how to market it. And I think my suspicion is that they had some kind of fight with Adrian Lyon over the cut. Um, and I don't know if what was released is really his cut or their cut or what, but I know they tried to get like a streamer or another studio to buy it from them. And I talked to somebody from another studio who had seen it. And this was long before I had seen it. Um, and in fact, like they have volunteered this information to me at a party. And it was the first time I had met this person and they are a well-known studio executive. And they told me that they watched it and considered to buy, buying it and ultimately decided that it was too sadistic and that they didn't know how to release it because it was too sadistic. I don't know if you watched the film. When I, I watched the film, it. 
I was expecting something different based on the fact that this studio executive told me it was too sadistic. So I wonder if he saw a different cut than what I see. see. It's it's just, it's, it it is interesting that this movie that for all intents and purposes, like I I think the movie's fine. I don't think the movie's great. One way or the other. I don't think it's very erotic. That's the other thing too. I was just like, it, it. there was so much subterfuge and so much speaking and talking about these two and their relationship and all these things projected in the movie. Just it's fine. It's, it's not, it's, it's nothing to particularly write home about, but um, that's the best we can do right now is, is sort of a, a rounded edges, Adrian line Hulu release says something about what the market, you know, bears and what it wants right now. Yeah, I, you know, I do think too, though, that there is, there might be a kind of an adjustment period, and I don't know how long it's going to be, but intimacy coordinators are a new thing on Hollywood sets. Mm -hmm. And I think that people who have been directing movies for a long time, and by a long time, I mean 20, 30 years, like the kind of people who would have easily put a sex scene or more than one sex scene in any movie that they made in the 90s, now are either they just don't want to deal with intimacy coordinators or they're against them or they're afraid to even touch that material. And I don't know if a younger generation of filmmakers, they haven't shown much interest in that kind of material as far as I can tell. Except for, you know, independent films, some independent films, some international films, but generally the movies that are, are being made, you know, even released for kind of Oscar consideration they're just not going near the subject of sexuality. And I think people might be afraid to handle it in the wrong way. They're, they're afraid that they will handle it in the wrong way and get kind of canceled. I mean, that's fair. I could see that to some degree. I mean, I think it's, I think it's overly cautious, but I can understand in the current landscape feeling like that's the safest, you know, way to, to go about things. Mm-hmm. It, it, it just feels I just think it's, you know, you mentioned the international component of it. I just think it's fascinating, right? I mean, we're really talking about basically one country, right? Because <laughs> every yeah. other country makes movies about this, right, left, and center. Yeah. Obviously, you know, yeah. you've got Cronenberg doing what he does in Canada. You've right. got Adam Goyen. You've got all sorts of people. A mode of art. It's like none of these people, none of these filmmakers are afraid to talk about something that is so fundamental to our being, except yeah. for this country. Yeah. It's just, it's, it is, it is, I mean, it speaks volumes about what sort of is in the DNA of this country. But what, I mean, I think that what we have had recently, and yes, I think they've mostly been international films, maybe entirely international films, but there have been, you know, a few art house hits about queer romances, Mm -hmm. mostly period pieces. Like that seems to be kind of this safe zone where um, that allows for artistic expression and also audiences want to see it. Like it's a kind of a proven market. Um, Absolutely. I mean, Neon in particular seems to really be kind of cornering that market. Yeah. And so I think that um, I would like to see more movies about straight people having sex and sexual relationships between straight people, because I just think that there's still so much to figure out in our culture, you know, that it's still such a a rich vein. And also, you know, more relationships about queer people today, not necessarily wearing large dresses. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's, I don't know if you've seen Fire Island, but like, and it's, and it's, it's, it's a very nice film. Um, I, I enjoyed it um, quite a bit, but I do think it's interesting that that gets made because it's quote unquote gay pride and prejudice. I mean, it's, yeah. it's just like the fact that to your point, why do we have to be latching on to something else 
in order for this thing to get made. Mm-hmm. Um, we should, you know, it, it, we should just be making these movies. I, I mean, listen, this, this speaks to a, a much kind of broader point about this, this industry, you know, from 30,000 feet in terms of why certain films are getting made and why other films aren't getting made. And obviously you said it best because what makes money is what's going to get made. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, but I do hope that there is some sort of a pendulum that swings back to, to center a little bit more and we can start seeing um, an exploration of, of you would think something people would want to be exploring. I, just, I find the whole thing very bizarre. When I, you know, I, when I talk to people who are a little bit older than me, who have kids who are teenagers or 20 somethings, I've had more than one, more than a few people in that situation tell me that their kids are not interested in sex. Why do you think that is? I don't know. (laughs) What are we raising a generation of eunuchs? I don't understand. I don't know. And I mean, I, I don't want to say something that'll accidentally seem insensitive. Because, okay. you know, I, when, I, when I was growing up, and I think probably when you were growing up, nobody talked about being asexual as an option. Mm-hmm. And now it is an option that is considered to be valid and, and is the right thing for some people. So I don't want to say anything where it's just like, come on, you know, like oh, get no, it together, I, I, kids. I, but yeah. um, it, it does, it's, you know, certainly like not all of these kids have come out as asexual. It's just right. sex is not the important thing in their lives. Whereas when I was a teenager, it was very important. That's kind of what I'm finding surprising. Nothing, uh, just to be very clear, nothing against, you know, sexual fluidity or, or lack thereof, more power to them. I just remember being 13 and 14 years old and I swear it was all I thought about. Yeah. Um, I mean, when you're, when you're a teenager, I'm just, it's surprising to me that, that either they feel as though they can't express themselves, which is scary and sad and that shouldn't be the case. Mm-hmm. Um, or to your point, it doesn't seem to be on their minds, which makes me just wonder about any number of other things. Yeah. It's, it is fascinating. And I, and I do think, you know, it's interesting because like, if you look at a show like Euphoria, which is, I mean, a very sexual show, I mean, that thing is so dialed up. It's everything about that show is at 11. Um, the highest rated show on HBO since Game of Thrones is doing incredibly well. It's streamed off you know, constantly by, by that generation does make me think that there's something there, right? Like they do want to watch content that speaks to them and what they're going through. Right. I just don't know. It feels like TV used to be a place to go um, to get a sense, like a weather vane of culture. Mm -hmm. And now with literally like more than 300 shows are made last year, there's so much content it's very hard to glean where the culture is anymore. And, what and so want. much of the content is period or it's fantasy. Right. Um, and so there aren't a lot of shows like Allie McBeal that are yeah. like, I mean, even if it did it in a magical realist way, it was trying to reflect the moment that it was made. It's very true. And I don't, I don't, I don't know what that is. Right. I mean, broadcast television is just not a barometer of much right now. And I don't say that, you know, uh, pejoratively, I just think, it's just the landscape has just become so broad now. Um, so yeah, I just kind of look to, that's why like I look to a euphoria. I feel like HBO is definitely a, a bellwether right. to some degree. And I'm like, well, there's something there. And obviously there's a whole lot of people that like the show and like what the show is saying, or at least, you know, how it exists. It's just, it's, it is fascinating. And through the prism of Ali McBeal to see how that show felt so kind of in its pocket, Right. And, and knowing what it's theoretically knowing what it's trying to say, uh-huh. um, 
and that we don't have anything like it today, I just think it's sort of interesting. And I don't, I don't know what it says about where we yeah. are. It certainly feels as though um, sex feels off the table in a, in a weird way. So, even on the new Sex in the City. Even on the news, although, I mean, don't get me started on Che, but yeah, there's, <laughs> there's, <laughs> that's a whole other, that's a whole other thing. Yeah. But um, thank you so much for coming on sure. and talking about yeah, this. Yeah, this is really fun. I'm, I'm excited to listen to your other Ally McBeal episode. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. But honestly, this was an absolute blast. And if people aren't listening to, uh, you must remember this, uh, you know, just go do that. Don't be stupid. <laughs> um, but thank you so, so much, Karina, for coming on. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Welcome to Podcast Like It's 1999. I'm your host, Phyllis Govan. With me back, Carrie Corrigan, everyone's favorite guest, um, is back uh, to talk about Ally McBeal. Um, so, I, you know, I knew that I wanted to do, uh, I wanted to talk about the show for you know a bunch of reasons one of the one of the biggest being that it was one of the biggest shows in 1999 i know that you were a mere child back then so you weren't watching the show back in 1999 um but have you sussed out how much of sort of a cultural kind of lightning rod this show was oh absolutely like i think I think I've known about it being a cultural lightning rod longer than I've known, like what it was exactly about. Just like, right. And so you started watching it relatively recently and I texted you and I was like, you need to come on and talk about this. And you were like, <laughs> absolutely. This woman's a nutcase as is everyone on this show. Like, let's do it. Um, but had you ever seen the show before? Had you ever seen any episodes or was this sort of your first, you know, I'd seen it in bits and pieces. Like, I obviously, I don't like, I had no context for it, but I obviously had seen the dancing baby thing when it like, when I was a kid and I was like, cool, awesome. Um, But like, I had seen bits and pieces. I had definitely given it a go a couple of times before. And like, I think I've seen the pilot episode maybe like four or five times, like constantly being like, I'm going to watch it. Like this is, I'm going to watch it all the way through. Okay, well, now it's been so long, I have to go back and start from the beginning. Um, but I, I, yeah, I don't think I, like, fully, fully watched it, deeply involved, paying attention right. until now. It's, I mean, first of all, it's debatable how much attention you should pay to a show like this. I feel like there's some sort of, there should be a warning on it, it and to some degree, just in terms of how sort of, um, it's, it, it, it is intoxicating in its own way. Right. Like it's it's living in its own little sort of like bubble of, we'll say, sanity or whatever you want to call it. And I do think that that was part of the secret sauce of why it was such a phenomenon. I don't think that there had been a show that 
attempted to be this, and I hate the fucking word quirky because I think it's the worst, but I do think that this show kind of wore its quirkiness on its sleeve in a way that I don't know that many shows had gotten away with. Yeah, I don't know if it was like, it's one of those things, I guess, I guess I would call it quirky only because looking at other things that David E. Kelly has, I don't, like, I read it with no context as, like, like weirdo humor. Like, I read it as, like, complete fucking, okay. like, weirdo, super odd, um, like, what's, like... Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I've lost the word for it, but like... And like really off, like offbeat humor, kind of like sure. surrealist, but like not like just like a very, very weird brand of humor. But looking at his additional work, you're kind of like, I don't know if that guy is like a real sick fuck. I think he just has. <laughs> I think he just like. <laughs> I mean it. Yeah, I, no, no, I know. I know. I don't think Michelle Pfeiffer is married to somebody who's like. No, got a super, super weird. No, I mean, I remember when Picket Fences came out. Have you ever watched Picket Fences by any chance? No. Um, So Picket Fences came out a few years previous. (laughs) And that was that also won best. I want want to make sure that I'm not talking out of my ass here. I'm almost 100% sure that Picket Fences came out um, before these shows. I'm sure it did. Um, But uh, yeah, so it premieres in 92. So that show comes out and it's about this small town. I believe it's Wisconsin. Um, and it's just, it, it's almost like David E. Kelly's David Lynch show, right? Like it's kind of his Twin Peaks in the sense that everyone's a little bit quirky. Everybody's a little bit weird. There's weird sort of things happening in this small town. Um, it's obviously not nearly as deeply surreal as a Twin Peaks, but it, 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 when it came out, it kind of got tagged with this is a quote unquote accessible version of Twin Peaks. I bring this up just because, and I love Twin Peaks, just to be very, very clear. But I do think that this feels like an extension of that. It was like, he's like, I'm going to go even farther with this and I'm going to see how far I can push this idea of um, sort of, to your point, kind of odd humor. I guess. Because like if you look at the John Cage character, the the, the Peter McNichol character, uh I mean it's 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 how's that a person? How is that a like how is that a I don't even know? The dismount off of toilet seats. It's so weird. I love it. 
Well, John Cage definitely feels like a carry guy. I love it. Like, protect him at all costs. I'm like, <laughs> I love this little weirdo. Yes. No, I mean, I, I, for sure. He's definitely, I think, the most, perhaps the most interesting character on the show. Totally. In terms of, like, what he's grappling with. Because I think he's grappling with, like, definitions of masculinity. Whereas I think that Allie isn't really grappling with femininity, per se. I wouldn't say with femininity, but what um, I would say a certain strain of a certain strain of femininity in terms of like expectations for the era, I guess. Like, what does it not like? What does it mean to be a woman? But like, what does it mean to be a woman in the '90s, in the height of like the second sexual revolution or whatever? It, knee deep in in sort of Clinton Monica Lewinsky territory. This this show premieres right around the time that that's all happening. Um, so there's that mixed into it. I sent you an advertisement. Uh, I texted you an advertisement last night for the show that said it's Allie's worst nightmare. She's turning thirty and she's single. <laughs> Just like, I will hell? say the first time, like when I was watching this. And like the first birthday episode where she's turning like 27 or 28, I was like, what? (laughs) I was like, she's been 27 this whole time. It's just also, I think it's, there's something about like being a, there are some things where you're like, oh, our idea of being in your twenties today is so much more like your twenties are your extended teens for all intents and purposes. Like, but then also being aware of it when I was a child, like I just register her as like, it's the same way I look at like, like teenage characters in any movie I watched when I was a little kid. I'm like, Oh, you guys are adults. Like there's something where I look at Allie and Allie is supposed to be younger than I am when the series starts. And I'm like, no, you're older than me. Well, it's, it's funny you say that because I recorded an episode with uh, Karina Longworth about Allie McBeal as well. And she was talking about how watching the show at 17, she was like, this show is the best. She was like, Allie seems like she's 17. <laughs> like it just, it really did feel like a 17 year old or a teenager's perspective of what a grown up is. Do you know what I'm saying? Yes. But it's, but it's not really like don't tell me that that you know Allie's relationship with Renee for instance is a believable relationship under any circumstances oh no I think it's believable really oh my god like it's believable I totally believe that they're like besties I I, okay let me rephrase I think that their stations in life don't correlate necessarily with the way they act no, but I think I've known people and I have definitely been that person before. Okay. That's the, like, that's the, that is the one relationship where I'm like, no, this makes sense. Where it's like, you're, a, you're an adult. Sure. You go and you do your little adult job during the day and you like come home and you peel off your adult costume and right, you're hanging right. out with your roommate and you're like, oh God, thank God I can breathe and be like 16 again. And wear pajamas and dance with uh, blown up dolls um i not i have not danced with a blow-up doll but i'm like i mean pretty close it's nice to come home to like a roommate who's your best friend and you're like oh thank god i can like unzip this grown-up costume and no, just like I, that i totally get 
there's just a little bit of yeah no I, I think that's fair Renee also I feel like isn't much of a character if we're being completely honest like she's sort of there there's times where she verges on being a character and then other times where she's just a sounding board for Allie to say things to oh yeah so I, I think they're like like you said yeah no everything you said I was gonna um, so- I was gonna say something and then I was like for the people that have not watched Ally McBeal, I'm going to give a very brief synopsis of what this show is actually about. Uh, the series set in the fictional Boston law firm of Cajun Fish begins with the main character, Allison Marie Allie McBeal, uh, joining the firm, co-owned by her law school classmate, Richard Fish, played by Greg Gerben on her first day. Allie's horrified to find that she has been uh, that she will be working alongside her ex-boyfriend, Billy Thomas, played by Gil Bellows, whom she's never gotten over. To make things worse, Billy is now married to fellow lawyer Georgia, played by Courtney Thorne Smith, who later joins Cajun Fish. So, uh, you know, the show is, as anyone can imagine, a a pretty deeply procedural legal drama um, with a new case every week that mostly seems to deal with the gender war quite honestly it feels like most of these they don't they don't do any murder cases outside of the crossover with the practice which was bizarre um i don't know if you've gotten to that episode yet um it is i can't wait (laughs) it's real weird um so but their cases for the most part are relatively low stakes right they're people dealing with lawsuits sexual harassment lawsuits or you know divorce or any number of cases of of that nature which obviously feed into Ali and the rest of the employees uh romantic foibles and what have you that's going on in their lives um you know this sort of the the one of the biggest sort of parts of the show is the unisex bathroom um this head of their time Truly ahead of their time. I mean, it is one of those things now. So I want to unpack this for a second because I think, first of all, gross. (laughs) They spend way too much time in a fucking bathroom, Uh, a a place that is really not a social place. It serves a purpose. Have you ever worked in an office? Yes. Like a boring boring office? Maybe it's a girl thing. Because I have shot the shit in an office bathroom way too many times for an an egregious amount of time. I don't want to engender this because I don't think that it's necessarily the case, but women do spend more time in bathrooms than men. Unfortunately, because the world demands them to look a certain way, which is completely And I apologize on behalf of the patriarchy. I think that, you know, just in terms of the makeup and the whatevers that you guys have to constantly do, men don't have to do these things. So I feel like men go to a bathroom, they do what they have to do, and they leave. I've never hung out in a bathroom. I've never <laughs> ch- chatted with a, with a friend in a bathroom. It's just not a thing that I've ever done. That's not to say that it doesn't exist. It clearly does. This show really takes that to the nth degree, though. I mean, it's a standing set, clearly. So when push comes to shove, they're just like, oh, yeah, they'll have this conversation in the fucking bathroom when, you know, John is, is you know, dismounting off of a toilet and or Billy and George are fucking in a toilet stall or whatever the case might be. This show is very much embracing all of that. Um, my question to you is, you've answered it a bit by saying, clearly, bathrooms are a big social spot for you. Aside from the fact that um, a unisex bathroom at a workplace today would apparently 
never happen in a million years because it'd be some political fucking landmine that nobody would want to be a part of, um, which is absurd. Gender neutral. Do you have gender neutral bathrooms? Have you? Yeah. So that does happen. I mean, we have gender, like uh, we have gender neutral bathrooms. It's not like people really like it's yeah it's also not like i mean in the office it's not like i'm just gonna like walk into the it's like men slash like gender neutral it's not like i'm gonna like waltz right in there right but if this was texas for instance you wouldn't you would would never they would never so um but but this is in i mean this is in boston so of course they're you know very progressive there um and i say boston with quotation marks since every episode ends with ali walking in slow motion down a clear soundstage from the Fox lot. Um, so I don't, I don't think they ever stepped foot in Boston during this entire run. Uh, but um, I, I want to ask you about the, the fantasy sequences for a second. Okay. Because I feel like a lot of the stuff that I've read, and there's a couple things that I'll, a couple quotes that I want to read from, from various articles, but it feels like a lot of women at the time and perhaps women now that watch the show, um, there's a freedom in how sort of carefree Allie is about her fantasy life or her fantasy, her hopes of what the world could be like that. There's this, there's a independence to the fact that this show allowed her to kind of wear her romanticism or her various sort of messiness on her sleeve. Do you think that that is, an accurate representation? Um, Do you find that one of the, the good things about this show? I think there are times when it's a little bit ridiculous, but I think for the most part, I'm like, oh, this is a nice like visualization of thoughts that I have had or thoughts that other people I know have had just based on conversations. Like, I think it's... Mm-hmm. I don't know. Maybe I just like daydream a lot. Maybe I do just, maybe I love it because I'm like, "Hmm, I fantasize a lot too. I'm always like looking and like looking at something and seeing like what it could be. Right. Well, that, I mean, I think that that's the reason I ask you is sort of twofold. The first is I think that, you know, you're a creative imaginative person. You're also a single woman around the age that Allie McBeal was supposed to be. Um, and I and I just wonder whether I mean we all daydream. I think that anyone who doesn't is just is just lying to themselves to some degree or another. And I think that this show really sort of visualizing that was really exciting for people at the time. And I think it's set the stage for any number of shows since. Um, you know, I, I, there's this one quote that I'll that I'll read. Uh, quickly here 20 years later Ali McBeal stands as an anomaly a show defined as much by the talk it stirred up in the real world as by the things that happened in its own heightened reality but a second look gives Kelly uh, a second look shows Kelly really tried to stretch within his small screen boundaries he has the man who famously pushed Rosalind down the elevator shaft on LA law after all Ali McBeal bridged the gap between TV genres harkening back to 80s dramedies like the days and nights of Molly Dodd and moonlighting while setting the stage for modern day category busting like crazy ex-girlfriend and girls I think that there's I can see that, right? Like I, I, the, the, the moonlighting to Ally McBeal to crazy ex-girlfriend. I see the line there. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, crazy ex-girlfriend was uh, wrapped his arms around mental illness though. I mean, that was a show that was truly about grappling with 
mental illness, grappling with all the things that were sort of going on inside this character's head, all of these unrealistic expectations. <laughs> Allie doesn't grapple with it at all. No. Um, I mean, she does go to therapy, but... <laughs> therapy. I put that in fucking quotation marks. None of these therapists feel like therapists. I don't know. Every now and then. Um, I mean, the first episode that... Uh, Tracy Ullman? Yeah, that Tracy Ullman was on. I recorded a bit of it and I sent it to a friend who I once, like, we had the same therapist at one point. <laughs> and I was like, holy shit. It's her... It's better like, than Rosie it was O'Donnell. A bad therapist. As, yeah, as a bad therapist. They're a bad therapist. I like that they're represented on Allie McBeal. <laughs> and I, I mean, I guess you're right in the sense that I don't want to make it seem as though they don't grapple with this at all. I think that if, you know, a perfect... They a, don't do so in a meaningful way. Right. Like, for instance, and I think this feels like a, a good mirror, Carrie Bradshaw's dealing with therapy is completely ridiculous. She goes to a therapist for one episode, thumbs her nose at the entire mental health organization and says, fuck all this. I don't need therapy. That show's not grappling with anything. This show at least says like, Allie clearly has, has to go talk to somebody. <laughs> she, she can't keep doing this. So that's something. It's something. Look, I think the thing about Allie McBeal that I love, and I said this on Twitter, I'll say it again. Mm-hmm. It's, a show about high functioning clinically insane people for high functioning clinically insane people like she definitely needs therapy but like she can get by in the world without it yeah i mean i texted you this um and i stand by it which is that if this show's season finale uh, you know, cut or series finale cut to a, a mental health uh, hospital and it was group therapy and all of the characters were there, I'd be like, yeah, no, that tracks. I mean, all of these people, I mean, the only people who I would say maybe don't belong in a mental institution is Georgia and Renee. Yes. Everyone else, straight jackets for the lot of them. Straight jackets, <laughs> lobotomies. <laughs> This Francis their asses. Like, <laughs> honestly. You know, <it's, laughs> I think that it's, but I mean, do you think that this is all just indicative of the time that it came out? Because, you know, full, full disclosure, not full disclosure, but they are trying to do a reboot of this show. I don't know what Ali McBeal looks like in 2023 or 2024, if this show ever gets made. I, I mean, what is that? What is that? I mean, it, it's, I can see Brian Fuller doing it. I'd, I, in fact, would, I would love to see that version of it. But something this heightened and this sort of broad, on top of the fact that, like, I feel like we have to talk about Aaron Sorkin to some degree because I feel like his perspective of women is kind of similar to David E. Kelly's. David E. Kelly's is better, certainly got more gradation to it, but they're still tripping over their high heels and falling down and falling off of chairs. And like, what's going on? I mean, okay, I think the first point, Mm -hmm. Allie McBeal in 2023, 2024, I don't know. I kind of think because everything is so there's more room for like weirdo humor, like weird humor. There's more, I think like, honestly, I can't believe more people aren't watching it. Like there's not some sort of like revival of it right now. Like, Oh my God, you should watch the show. Um, 
but I also think like, I don't know, we need to show up about insane people. The world is just so crazy. Like there are some, and, and a world about insane people who also like argue about like moral dilemmas and things that were taken from the headlines. Like, I think that there definitely is not a shortage of subject material that they could cover and kind of like touch upon in their court cases and like all of those scenes. Um, Well, I feel like Karina made an interesting point. She was like, I could see a cancel culture version of Ali McBeal for sure. Do you know what I mean? Where, where you're sort of focused on the, the, the fissure that seems to exist in this country I think there's a, a way to kind of unpack that in a in a somewhat charming, perhaps funny way, so that we don't all want to jump off a cliff. But I think that it, it's I, I agree with you. I, I may, maybe you're absolutely right. Maybe that maybe that is the, the 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 way to sort of get people to eat their vegetables. Maybe I don't know. And then I don't I don't know. I think I think the women thing is like it's obviously a very hard thing to do with sitcoms and I think no matter if you're a man writing a woman I I think that's the difference between Aaron Sorkin and David E. Kelly like in this particular instance I think David E. Kelly does a better job in creating women in like Big Little Lies for example versus some like if Aaron Sorkin did that I don't know but like Aaron Sorkin couldn't do Big Little Lies I don't think he has did him absolutely not but like I think the thing with Ally McBeal is it, it's hard, I think, for any kind of, it's a difficult line to walk with a female protagonist in a sitcom of like, how much is it, is it too cutesy? Is it too, yeah. I'm worried about my biological clock and meeting a man. And is it too much that, or is it too much? Well, I don't care about any of that. I'm a working woman. And how, serious do you make her and how klutzy do you make her like you have to have someone who's endearing and like ordinary enough that's like relatable and funny but that's that's the thing too like she has to be funny it's a sitcom i mean it's like it's a it's not a sitcom sitcom but it's like a sitcom dramedy hybrid that was sort of the interesting space that it existed in as well. It was the first hour long comedy to win best comedy at the Emmys the same year, 1999 David E. Kelly wins best drama as well for the practice the first time. And last time that's happened where the same writer showrunner creator has won best drama and best comedy in the same year. Um, it's nuts uh, that in 1999, he had five shows on the air that he was writing 95% of the episodes himself. Um, you know, writing them in longhand on ruled yellow notepads. I mean, it's, it is just one of those things where you're just like, this is madness. Like, I, I don't understand how you could function at that level. Admittedly, television was different. These are procedural shows to some degree or another. So like, he's not writing something just completely free form. Um, he's writing something that has pretty strict, you know, um, construction to it but uh, that's not to say that what he said what he did wasn't incredibly impressive it was um but i but i guess my question to you is sort of do you feel like ali and any of the women on this show for the record because i think that i think that ali uh nell ling elaine georgia these are all very different women you know what i mean there and and renee they're all very different women they all exist in very different 
um, universes for all intents and purposes, and they all have very specific voices. Do you feel like it is, and, and this is sort of a segue into sort of the feminism that it was tagged with or lack thereof back in 1999 in terms of, you know, was this show anti-feminist? Notoriously, the cover of Time magazine, is feminism dead? You know, I, I, I obviously think that that's absurd. I think it's absurd at the time, but I also think that if you look at it now from 2022, I think the show is kind of groundbreaking in a lot of ways. I mean, despite the fact that it's, it's pretty cartoonish and silly and it's a comedy, it kind of breaks a fair amount of ground sexually in terms of the things that people talk about. It, it, it really kind of um, allows these people's freak flag to fly. I mean, what are your thoughts on all that? No, a hundred percent. I, I, like what you said, like it, it breaks ground. I think each of these women are so different and unique. And for the most part, Renee is like borderline where I'm at, at least for now, Ling is kind of borderline. Like I have yet to go we further. See in her and Allie kiss. <laughs> like it seems they like, it, yeah. it seems like they are whole people. And to have that many women in an hour-long primetime show, that alone seems kind of like crazy. I don't know. It seems like that's a pretty, that's not like peanuts. But like, uh, I guess I just, I don't know. I guess I don't fully... I don't like, I don't really fully buy the whole criticism at the time of like, this is anti-feminist because I think it's like my interpretation of it was always, it's a bunch of like second wave feminists annoyed that like with this very strict vision of feminine, of, of feminism where it's like, we fought so hard for you to not give a shit about men. Like that, that's sort of like very, narrow viewpoint we fought so you could get a job and now you're like just kind of working so you can meet somebody and then when you meet somebody you're going to give it all up anyway like all that stuff and oh and you're wearing mini skirts which in the workplace which is like like you didn't um i think i think the criticism just reflects the criticism of in general of second wave feminists versus third wave feminists in the 90s where it was like you don't appreciate anything that we did for you and you're going about this completely wrong and third wave feminists being like, no, we do appreciate what you did for us. Now it's our, it's our time to say we can have both or neither or one or the other. And the choice alone is feminism in and of itself. Like, I don't know. No, I, I, I absolutely wholeheartedly agree with you. I think that, you know, I think that a lot of it, I mean, it almost feels quaint now. I mean, it does feel quaint now. I mean, in the dumpster fire that we exist in right now, um, you know, where literally a woman's choice is being taken from her, the the idea of making a big stink out of the fact that Allie McBeal wears a short skirt um, to work seems quite frankly laughable, but David Kelly at the time, there's a quote, he said, I remember being kind of caught off guard because I was never, it was never our intention to put out there 
that Allie was a role model for anybody or a poster child for a cause. She was just Allie. She was all about her foibles, her strengths, her weaknesses. I didn't think she represented a class of people so much as just one persona. So we were all a little bit thrown. I was surprised by the Time Magazine cover. I'm surprised they were taking the character that seriously. Um, I, I think that I'm I'm with him until the last sentence. I'm with him until he's sort of like, we're just trying to have fun here, guys. Like, lighten up. And it's just like, that's such a hallmark of this show, too. I feel like so many times uh, a a client is is suing for sexual harassment or something along those lines. And the lawyer's defense is, can't we all just chill the fuck out? And you're just like, okay. Like, that's just that. That is more emblematic of just like late 90s nonsense. But do you sort of know what I'm saying? Like, I think he's no, I right think about that's perfect. Her. I think that's like, it's perfect. And that's the other thing. Like no one. Yeah. It's, I, it's just that weird thing where it's like, people are going to find some sort of issue with something, yeah. especially if it's given the time, especially like if it's a woman fronting a show suddenly, like, I don't know. I don't think that people watch shows with male leads and they're like, is this good for masculinity? I think there's so much riding on any show with like a female protagonist that is happening at a certain zeitgeist. And like, there's always some sort of debate of like, is this like, is this good for feminism? Is this good for women? And it's sometimes it's just like, I don't think they were like trying to go one way or the other there. I think they were just trying to make a show and not everything has to be, has to have some political weight to it, I guess. Like let, I I don't, I don't think I definitely don't buy it when he's like, we didn't think it was that serious. Like you have to be a little bit aware of that sort of response when you're operating in that sphere, but otherwise to be like, guys, chill the fuck out. <laughs> well, it's, you know, it's interesting because, you know, I was reading a bunch of these articles talking about sort of David E. Kelly's female characters and, and, and how uh, good he is at writing female characters. I mean, there's a lot of allusions to Mary Tyler Moore and Cameron Crowe and, and, and stuff like that of, of these male writers who, for whatever reason, were able to really kind of tap into the psychoses of, of women and, and the various sort of uh, issues that they have to deal with. And I think that if you put Ally McBeal next to a Mary Tyler Moore, you can see a lot of similarities in a good way. You know what I mean? Oh my God. A hundred percent. Yeah. A hundred percent. Like Ally McBeal is Mary Tyler Moore's daughter. Like. Yeah. yeah. Totally. I absolutely see that. So I, I think if you look at it through that lens and you, and you sort of see it as, a dialed up hour long, more fantastical version of Mary Tyler Moore. I think if anything, the show looks, in my opinion, quite groundbreaking in 1998. Now, obviously not so much, um, but I want to, I want to, since you've been on uh, a previous episode talking about sex and the city, I'd be remiss if I didn't sort of put these two shows next to each other for, for a brief instant, because I do feel like these two shows there's a little bit of like Ali walked so Carrie could run a little bit um, in terms of breaking a little bit of ground sexually, in terms of being able to talk about certain things on broadcast television, no less. You know what I mean? It's, it's, it's silly. It's goofy the way that they handle sex on the show. I would argue Ali surprisingly doesn't have much sex. She talks a lot about it, but she doesn't actually have. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
but you know, it's like kisses are like a big deal, <laughs> but, um, and we'll get to obviously what happens at the end of this episode in a second, but I, I, uh, the specific episode we're going to talk about, but I, do you sort of know what I'm saying? Where like, yeah. I feel like sex in the city really breaks ground in terms of independent women controlling their sexuality, the, the fun of sex, the emotional and physical pleasure of sex that I don't think women were quote unquote allowed to have up until that point. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I kind of wonder if Ali McBeal, if they had to be sillier with it because they were network TV. But I, again, like it's crazy that they're talking about it at all on network TV. Totally. I mean, listen, a fish and ling and their nonsense when it comes to, I mean, he, he stays in that relationship so long, but it's crazy before they have sex. I mean, She's sucking on his fingers. He's tickling the back of her kneecap. All sorts of just absolute nonsense until they eventually have sex. It takes like 20 episodes for them to have sex. <laughs> but it's, it is just interesting. To your point, I think the broadcastness of it was like, you need to make this, excuse me, sillier. Sex in the City is still a comedy. And the sex is still somewhat cartoonish. But it's also pretty, you know, out there. Right. Yeah. And they're all at least having sex. So that's something. But I I do think that I I guess it's just I I saw these two characters and I think looking at Ali McBeal and Carrie Bradshaw, both sort of and I fucking hate the term unlikable because it's just like, what does that even mean? And of course, we generally only use it when we're talking about female characters, of course. But like that unlikability or what people presumed presumed was that both of these characters had in spades at the time, right? Like both of them were doing things. Allie in particular is doing stuff that a lot of women think is annoying and and what have you. It's just, it's just interesting. I I think that they're both flawed characters in great ways. I think they're flawed in very human ways. And I have to wonder if they were deemed so unlikable at the time because the representation of women in television up until that point. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, like what was Mary Tyler Moore's greatest flaw? Like she was too perky sometimes. <laughs> she, yeah, like she that's was, the thing. She was real, but she also was a fantasy. Like yeah. Rhoda real, also kind of a fantasy. Like, mm-hmm. and I love them. I love them so much. And I, I, I can trying to think of like other characters in this space, like the kind of would have broken the ground for Allie McBeal for sex in the city. And I just, I, I can't really, I'm like drawing a blank on anything in the eighties. Yeah. I mean, in the eighties. Oh, I guess like des- well, late eighties, early nineties, yeah. designing women. Yeah. Yeah. I could see that. Unlikable women in that. I mean, Golden Girls. Golden Girls. Golden Unlike, Girls. I love Golden Girls. Unlikable yeah. characters in that. I, know, just, I guess it's maybe like that certain age. And I don't know. There's something different about an ensemble where they all sort of have flaws. And then mm-hmm. an ensemble where it's like there's very much a clear protagonist. And like, you there's know, some reason to find fault with them. I don't, I'm not, I'm, I don't know if this makes sense. I'm like working it out oh, yeah. right now. I think that, I mean, two things come to mind as you were talking. The first is we're talking primarily about comedies here. Um, yeah. And the reason being, of course, that I don't think that there were a tremendous amount of really 
bold, groundbreaking, three-dimensional female characters on broadcast television dramas. There are a handful. I mean, I think Carol Hathaway on ER is one of them. I think that CJ Craig on the West Wing sometimes was, <laughs> uh, sometimes wasn't. But and I and I do think that you know there are some. Um, I, I would argue uh, Felicity is as well. But I do think that there are a fair amount of. They're mostly on comedies that you can really kind of push the boundaries and really move the needle. Because I think that people are, they kind of let their guard down when they're watching a comedy. I mean, if you look at a show, I'm not the biggest Will and Grace fan in the world, but Will and Grace kind of changed people's perspectives on, on gay people in a lot of ways. It, it allowed them in their homes. It was a huge hit. I think it broke a lot of ground on that level. I think that comedies tend to allow people to kind of let them in a little bit more because you're making them laugh. And I think it just yeah. changes things. But um, the other thing that, that, that I was thinking as you were talking was about friends, right? I mean, I love friends. Don't get me wrong. But like, I don't think that any of the female characters on friends are breaking any molds. No. <laughs> so the episode that we're specifically talking about today is episode 214, Pyramids on the Nile. Uh, the synopsis is that Richard agrees to hire Ling to the annoyance of the firm, except Nell. Nell and John defend a couple fired because they were dating. Billy admits he still has feelings for Allie, and Allie and Billy share a kiss. It aired on February 15th, 1999. It was written by David E. Kelly, directed by Elodie Keene. Um, so from 30,000 feet, you've watched a handful, you've watched a fair amount of Ally McBeal at this point, and you kind of uh, honed in on this episode. Um, what about this episode kind of made you want to unpack it? Um, I think it's like, it's the climax of what the entire first season and first part of the second season are building to, where it's like all the Billy and Allie drama, will they or won't they? Uh-huh. What's going to happen? Will they or won't they? Will they or won't they? And they sort of do. They kiss. I mean, they treat a kiss like they treat a kiss like it was like a months long affair, which like uh, I will say, I don't know. There's the like emotional aspect of it, the emotional sluttiness of Billy, at least Mm -hmm. like that plays into it. But it's not like they were sleeping together for months yeah i mean um, i couldn't agree with you they more. kiss they kiss uh and it's a it's a it's a big deal i want to i want to talk about the elephant in the room for a quick second uh billy sucks billy um, sucks oh my god i'm so glad we're on the same page <laughs> i was like what if i come on and i'm like i hate billy and phil's like what no, Billy sucks. I, I and I, I I hate to put too much of it on Gilbello's shoulders, but I do think that unfortunately, between the writing of Billy very flatly written and Gilbello's not being perhaps the most charismatic actor in the world, there's so much writing on this relationship, and I don't really feel like it ever fully takes flight. It doesn't, and I think my thing is again not to put it too much on his shoulders, but it's there's something if you're going to play, if you're going to have a character who is, there's not a lot there on paper or what is on paper is kind of like red flag city. Like there has to be something that you're playing in it that makes 
people say, see like what she sees in him mm-hmm. it makes people see, okay, I get it. It's a bad idea, but I can understand why she's still fixated on this guy. But then Allie goes out with plenty of dudes who are like way better, way Jesse better Martin being one of them. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Like, what are you like? What are you doing? I don't I like, I don't know. I mean, at the same time, I've had friends who have, have gone out with guys or fixated on exes who you're really like, what is it about him? What is it about him? But that's the thing. Like there's nothing, there's nothing in, in the character that makes me, or even in their chemistry together that makes me root for the kiss. Like, even though I know it's a bad idea, even though, you know, it's like, you shouldn't be rooting for it. You're kind of like, oh my God, they're going to kiss. Oh my God, they're going to Like, there's none of that. I'm just like, oh my God. <laughs> it's, I mean, oh it's interesting because I feel like, so I was listening to the commentary on the pilot of Felicity that J.J. Abrams and Matt Reeves did. This was many moons ago. Um, and they talked about how uh, Ben's character was named Billy, but they changed it to Ben because Ali McBeal had a Billy and they didn't want... There was just, they just didn't want, you know, comparisons, whatever. Um, the reason I bring it up is because I do actually think that both of these shows in their DNA are about a woman who can't get over a guy, right? I mean, it's it, Felicity obviously has these unrealistic expectations of what's going to transpire between her and Ben. Uh, and that's the thrust of that show. And then with this show, it's Allie's been put into a circumstance where she has to come face to face with the man that she, quote unquote, never got over. The difference, of course, being she has no chemistry with this guy. So like you're watching this and unlike Felicity and, and Ben, who do have a chemistry and that that love triangle feels fully formed, this one is just sort of a bunch of guys that keep kind of going in and out of the rotation. If it's a, if it's a Jesse Martin, if it's any number of other guys that she's dating, and then those guys are compared to Billy and they all beat Billy. And yet Billy's the one that we're supposed to be rooting for. It just doesn't work. It doesn't work. Um, yeah. It's unfortunate. Um, it's <laughs> This is a That's great. The lighting, whatever you want. I'm fine. I, I, I say all of this because this episode is having some lighting. Uh, lighting really? Issues. All of our, uh, our Patreon uh, viewers will be able to see all these lighting issues. But um, I think that they never really know what to do with Billy. They have them kiss. Uh, they don't want them to have sex because that feels like a bell you can't unring. A kiss you kind of give, you kind of have your cake and eat it too. I think is what they're hoping for. I guess, but they treat the kiss like it was sex. Like and Georgia is the next episode is just hilarious. It's really just like <laughs> I mean, I don't know. A- My thing is like like Georgia should have dumped him ages ago oh my god yeah i don't know what she's holding on to. it's one of those things where you're like he's so clearly fixated on her he is not in this relationship it's a one-sided thing right now like what are you doing like out of self-respect they don't give him. Georgia anything to do on this show it's really kind of unfortunate she's it's it she's truly there only because they need the wedge between yeah Allie and Billy, which is 
just shitty. I mean, there's you could find a better thing. Why would you marry him to this woman who he doesn't deserve? I mean, it's just crazy. It's crazy. And it's like, I just, I don't, I don't understand it. And I like it. Be- I like it better when it's like, I like those episodes where Georgia and Allie are like, oh, actually we're friends. It's like, yeah, actually you are friends. And what you have in common is that you both like a fucking loser. (laughs) (laughs) Like it's, you know, what's also interesting too. And I know you haven't got to this point, but in season three, Billy gets a brain tumor. I don't know if you know this. So I've read this is the thing. I haven't gotten through the entire series, but I absolutely have read the Wikipedia summary for every episode of. Right. Um, so you know what's coming. So I'm not. Series. So I know what's coming. So you know that Billy becomes like a men's rights activist and like goes crazy and dyes his hair blonde, and everyone's just like, "What's going on?" And then he has a brain tumor and dies in the middle of the courtroom. Um, it's insane, um, but it made Billy interesting for a little bit there. Like when, Bill, when Billy starts to show a personality and quite frankly, I would argue that, that Gil Bellows feels like, oh, I got something to do here because two seasons, he's basically just been either you know, this I don't even, cuckolded by Georgia or whatever the case might be. It's just very strange. Or pining um, for Allie. Or pining for Allie. Yeah. I, I, so in this particular episode, John and Nell are taking on this big sexual harassment case. Um, there's this couple that met as work coworkers at a company that doesn't allow that. Basically, if you're dating, you have to disclose the relationships or you're and they're fired for not doing so, um, which folds into John and Nell having a past relationship and John kind of grappling with whatever that means. Um and Allie and Billy try a case with their client being literally Anna Nicole Smith, who's suing because her ex-husband, who died in his will, said that she could not get remarried. I mean, it's a little on the nose that it's actually Anna Nicole Smith. Like, I know that that's probably some, like, winky thing. She doesn't even have a line in this episode, by the way. She just sits there. But anyway. Um, and then, And then Fish hires Ling... Um, everyone overreacts, Billy overreacts, everyone's all fucking, I don't know, just acting crazy. Um, I, I, I guess this is a pretty thin episode when it comes to the actual, like, usually there's like two cases going on, but they kind of punt the, the Alley Billy case and put that to bed before the credits with, with a theme song that I swear to God has been in my head now for months. It feels like, but anyway. Trent, is it? It's the fucking Von de Shepherd. It's the. Oh, they put walk it. Oh, in the I was, line. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh, I was like, I thought you were talking about when they actually. No. no. Um, when she plays the Patsy no. Klein song. The pyramids on, pyramids on the Nile. Yeah. She sings that at the end. Right? That's not what it's about? called. What is it actually called, though? Um, I think it's called like you belong to me. Right. The lyric is pyramids. But the the lyric is in it. Yeah. Yeah. So this feels like a good time to talk about Vonda Shepard for a quick second here. Um, What are your thoughts on Vonda Shepard, Carrie? Love her. (laughs) (laughs) I love that she has like little cameos in every episode. I feel like I I like that that it started. I was like, Carrie's going to love Vonda Shepard. This just feels (laughs) like it's going to (laughs) happen. 
I love that it started as like it's she sings the theme song and then it's like as the series progresses it's like it's awesome I love that they go to their little bar and they're like hanging out and it's always it's always like a wink it's always like a oh here's a shot of Fonda Shepard like Fonda go off girl Vonda, who never has a line in an episode of this show, has billing over Portia de Rossi and Lucy Liu. <laughs> Who's her agent? Incredible. That theme uh, song carries the weight. <laughs> she deserves it. She Listen, I think she's great. I, I think that her covers are great. I think that it works as a, you know, the whole Greek chorus of what's going on in Allie's life. Um, it's also just so part of the iconography of the show. As I mentioned earlier, like it feels like every episode ends with her walking in slow motion while Vonda sings a cover of something that speaks to her current romantic state. I mean, it's, it's good. It's good TV. It's good TV. I mean, I think that's probably the reason why we are allowed to watch it in streaming with all of these songs, because can you imagine if they were playing the real songs, the licensing would be, we insane. would never, never. I'm sure that Vonda, by the way, is just like, sure. Stream it forever, whatever. Like, you know, I'm sure she's getting paid. I mean, it's that I'd remember. And I don't, you won't remember. Cause obviously you were a, a child, but uh, there was a, a CD. You never know, Phil. You never know. You might have the CD. I don't know. I, I, Absolutely correct. I don't want to make any assumptions. No one has seen Reds as much as Carrie Corrigan has, and she wasn't born when it came out. So uh, <laughs> here nor there. Uh, there is a CD that came out, um, which was I think it was called. What was it called? Hold on. Um, it was called like the song here, the songs of Ally McBeal. Songs from Ally McBeal featuring Bonda Shepherd, um, and it was a very, very, very successful CD. Uh, I don't know what the covers were on it. Do you know what they? I'm, I'm looking it up right now. Um, um, okay, looking at the CD cover, I definitely remember seeing this at the right? library. <laughs> the library, sure, sure. No, listen, I did a lot of music discovery in like like late elementary school, early middle school at the library. Did you really? Flipping through, okay. Yeah. Flipping through all of the, like, the CD racks, the soundtrack, um, the soundtrack section was my favorite because you could get like, you could find a lot of different stuff. Um, this, I mean, like, this seed, this was loved a, a compilation. She, I mean, Vonda had a lot of Christmas albums. Vonda had a lot of, I mean, she, it, it, she did very well for herself. Uh, she got a great voice. I do think the going to the bar thing has a very peach pit quality to it though. Yes. Like it's, it's such a, it's such a broadcast trope where it's like they go to a place and they all dance and drink and have fun and whatever. I I mean, I love it, but it's just, it's not real life, but. um, It's definitely not real life because it works when it's the peach pit because they're in high school, they're friends. Mm -hmm. The thing about Allie McBeal is I don't care how close you are with your coworkers and how friendly you are during the day. I don't know anybody Aside, I've had like one, maybe one or two coworkers, but I don't know anybody who willingly hangs out after work with their coworkers that many times a week. Like, that's where I'm like, you're off the clock. Go home. See your other friends. Have real friends. Yeah. No, I agree with you 100%. It's that's definitely a 
a broadcasty trope, but I, I do. Speaking of tropes, I want to talk for a second because I do think that the the Vonda musical component does speak to the heightened nature of the show by and large. I do feel like, first of all, a lot of musicians, real musicians showed up in episodes, Al Green, Barry White, um, any number, I think Mariah Carey shows up in an episode. So like you had a musical component to this show that feels like it's, it's kind of part of the heightened nature of this show. And there's this, there's a line uh, in this Pace magazine article that I read about Alan McBeal that said, um, the show borrowed the central conceit of the musical genre, which compels characters not to be ashamed of what they're feeling, to sing it out instead, no matter how silly or sad or embarrassed it might sound. For attentive listeners, Shepard makes you make sure you remember this every time Ally McBeal begins with the lyrics, oh, I believe I'm ready for what love has to bring. Got myself together. Now I'm ready to sing. She sings in Searching My Soul, Kelly's character's heater imperative to the letter. I think there is something to that, right? Like, I think all these characters, specifically John Cage, who needs Barry White, apparently apparently to get an erection. I think that, that all of this stuff is part and parcel of the show. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting that you said that. Cause then I remembered, I haven't seen it yet, but wasn't there an episode that was a musical? Yeah. The end of the, the finale of season three, I believe. Yeah. Like they all, there is something about some of these episodes where you think this could easily be a musical. These are characters in a musical and they're just not breaking out into song. But there are moments when you're like, now that I think about it, I'm like, oh yeah, there are moments when they absolutely could. And maybe that's where the Stan and Vonda Shepherd songs are kind of like bridging that gap. But yeah, absolutely. it's a heightened, re- like it has the heightened reality of a musical without. It, it really does. The, the original songs. I think that, I mean, and just seeing these actual artists show up to sing their songs. I mean, there was, there was a really great, uh, there's an oral history that I'll post on our Twitter um, from the Hollywood Reporter for its 20th anniversary back in 2017. And Gil Bellows was talking about how he literally, for the scene when Al Green shows up and sings to Allie in her bedroom, um, Gil Bellows like hid literally like beside the bed just because he wanted desperately to see Al Green sing to like, it's just, they had these just really crazy, like when you're a zeitgeisty show like that and you get real people to show up to do these things, it's got to feel really exciting, but it's also got to feel really surreal at the same time. Probably. Yeah. I mean, that, that just seems like the era of what a time, like what a time for TV, the era though, when, where there were so many like flashy cameos, whether they were music artists or whether they were like, I don't know. Like I think of friends, like friends had so many big names playing bit parts or like appearing as themselves. And it was such, it was such a thing. Bring back, like bring back the star cameo. I want, I want more TV shows to have, like stars playing like celebrities playing themselves totally i think we're also talking about a time you know I, one of the many reasons that i wanted to explore television in 99 was because it's the sort of tip of the spear because it's the premiere of the sopranos you have sex and city in its second season so cable is starting to turn into what cable obviously is today but broadcast is still the big dog, obviously, right? I mean, the West Wing still wins best drama for four years, you know, for the next four years. But 
it's the beginning of the end for broadcast. It's the beginning of the future when it comes to cable. And we're sort of in this moment when they both can coexist and they're both kind of killing it in a really interesting way. Um, it's, it, it is unfortunate to your point that broadcast kind of gets caught up trying to chase cable, which is just the, the wrong instinct. And they should have just embraced what is broadcast, which is to your point, fucking cameos of celebrities showing up as themselves, just like fun, like just television that doesn't make you think too hard. That makes you, you know, I don't know. I just, I think broadcast TV has just got so Yeah, it makes me sad seeing what broadcast TV has become, where it is like some million different NCISs. It's like, it's like, who's the target audience for broadcast TV now? Like your grandmother? I I wish I could tell you. I am developing currently a broadcast television show, so I'm hoping that uh, that I can answer that question for you at some point. But I, I mean, yeah, it's it's it definitely feels like it's lost the thread. But I also just feel like you know we're also lost in reboots. I mean, we've talked about a reboot of Alan McBeal over the course of this episode, and you're just like maybe it isn't the best course of action, guys. Like you know, so. These are all these are all notions for other people to to think about. But I, I do sort of I, I wanted to ask you about the um I, I guess sort of the romance on the show between other characters. In terms of the romance between John and Nell, then the romance between um Ling and Fish. But specifically John and Nell, I want to unpack that for a second because I feel like we've talked a lot about the femininity of the show, but I think that masculinity is also unpacked in an interesting way on the show in the sense that none of these men outside of Billy feel sort of built in the prototypical alpha male, you know, that you usually see on broadcast television shows. Um, John in particular is a character who grapples with what he wants from a woman uh, in terms of her fantasies. I mean, he gets into a whole argument with now at the top of season three about not wanting her to fantasize about any man outside of him. Um, I mean, it's, it, it gets, it gets pretty weird, but I, I sort of just wanted to kind of for a second here, get your perspective on the masculinity and the way that the male characters are portrayed on the show. I think that was definitely something that I like picked up on early on because isn't, isn't John dating Whipper in like the very earliest episodes? That's Fish, not John Cage. Oh wait, 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 wait. Okay, wait, yeah. So John like, is, I remember John, is, John Cage um, is introduced I, having had sex with a prostitute. <laughs> oh yes. Okay. I like sometimes mix them up a little bit. Um, yeah. Yeah. But I remember seeing that. And I was like oh, this show's going to be, like, weird in a good way. (laughs) Yes. Like, just the the very, I think the very act alone of, like, setting up Cage with, Mm -hmm. he's dating a much, much older woman, and then he moves on to date. Yeah, Fish fish is with his whipper. Wait, I'm like, okay, wait. I keep mixing up their names. Yeah. It's easier if you... Fish. Uh, Fishes is is Greg German. Um, Peter McNichol is John Cage. Yes. It's because his name doesn't really make sense to what Peter McNichol looks like. You're just like, why? Right. Yeah. yeah. I think that I think that's why I always like mix them up. Because yeah. Peter McNichol looks like a, like 
His, and his character's so weird, you'd think he'd be fish. Um, okay. Yeah. Fish going from Diane Cannon to Diane Cannon Lucy Liu. to Lucy Liu. Yeah. I was like, that's a wild swing. It but also just swing. the power dynamics that change constantly. Constantly, it was like, oh, cool. He's the guy who's like in charge of this entire mm-hmm. law firm, but he's also like, in this relationship where he does not wear the pants with no, whipper, I mean, like them, not at all. Neither yeah, of them do. Yeah. Yeah. But I thought that was, I, I don't know. I was like, I think that's an interesting dynamic where it's like, totally. he's supposed to be top dog, but, and you would think he'd be, it's like alpha male sort of dude from, I don't know, previous tropes um, on television, but it's like, I don't, I don't know. And I, I think the relationship in season two, like getting here, I, I don't know. I think there's something about, again, with like Nell, he definitely, I don't know. He's got a thing for like, he's got a thing for women who tell him he's a piece of shit all the time. I, I mean, which I respect. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, like, that's something to unpack off mic, but yeah, I think there's <laughs> uh, there's something there. I, I mean, I I agree with you. I think that, I mean, the 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 whole fish thing up top is with the waddle, and it's like he's into this part of her oh neck, yes yeah um, because she's older. She and then then they try to make he's it seem so as though younger weird. women have a waddle. That's not they really don't. a thing. He's a weird dude. He's, he's a weird a, dude. He's a weird dude. And then John John dating Nell what I appreciate about it is they don't make it easy, right? Like he's grappling with like, how does he, how does he date someone who seems so completely outside his, his, you know, wheelhouse. So like, so sure of herself and so confident and so like brisk. And he's just this nervous little guy. Your love for John Cage is just is really just warming my heart. Protect With this him little at frog. <laughs> he's yeah, he's a he's a lovely guy. Except for at times he's not. But I do think that like one of the things I think this show really kind of doesn't really know what to do with is the fact that weirdly you feel like Ali should end up with John. Because they're both yes. kind of weirdos. But the show kind of never really goes there. Um I don't know if it's because they're fully baked into this Billy thing, but they never really go there. And then it should be said, Robert Downey Jr. shows up in season four, um, which is another sort of, you know, not an alpha. Like he's, I love Robert Downey Jr., but like there's something very kind of, I hate the term metrosexual because I don't even really know what it means, but like there is just something that he doesn't fit in a box of masculinity, right? And I think that that that. The the fact that that's the type of person that a David E Kelly wanted on the show, b that he wanted Ali to end up with, even though they weren't able to do that because he ultimately, unfortunately, had to go back to prison, and then um, they <laughs> couldn't have them get married, uh, which was what season five was going to be all about them being married before the show ended. Um, so then they just had no season five, and it was very clear they didn't have a season five because the show was just unwieldy and bonkers and what have you. But I bring up the Robert Jane Jr. thing just because it feels like, again, these are very different types of men and none of them really fit in a prototypical male 
leading character on a broadcast television show. I respect that about the show. I think that's great. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think it's interesting that a lot of the guys Ali dates are sort of these like typical handsome male, male, like, like the, the guy she's dating when she kisses Greg. Yeah. A doctor, Mm -hmm. handsome, Hot hot doctor, strong, like, like, just very, like, I don't know, very typical. Mm-hmm. And it's just like saying, I like that it's like, mm, she's not going to end up with this guy. Somehow you watch it and you're like, this guy's not right for her. All of these, like, typical romantic lead sort of guys who pop in as the guy of the week or the guy of the, like, little arc. You're kind of like, oh, she's not going to end up with him. But, but they this, all have that yeah. in common. Well, okay, so I not to not to uh, talk Sex and the City again, but I do for a second just want to say that you know, Big is clearly kind of the guy, right? He's the guy we meet in the pilot. He's the guy that she's obsessed with. He's the guy that that she ends up with until Peloton killed him. Um, and um, but we've discussed all of this on our episode about it, and just like that. But I I do think that. Despite the fact that I don't particularly like Carrie and Big together, I understood why the audience did. I understood what the the mechanisms there were, and I understood all the sort of connections that they had. This show doesn't have that for me. I don't feel like Allie and Billy have that. So what I'm left with is kind of a vacuum. Now, I think Robert Downey Jr. does fill that vacuum, and then unfortunately, just based on real life, they, they couldn't really bring that to fruition. But I think that that vacuum for Allie is a problem for the character because I don't feel like anyone, her love life just feels ping pongy. It doesn't feel like it actually sort of amounts to anything. Yes. And I think on one hand that I think on one hand that does sort of, although maybe it's more of a, like, maybe it's more of a, like this was unrealistic for the time. Like I think on one hand it reflects how random dating can be. Especially now where you're kind of just like, well, this is some, it's something to do. Like this is someone to like, this is company for the week. I don't know. Like, I think. I feel like you're speaking from experience, Carrie. (laughs) Maybe a little bit. Like there are times when there are times when it feels incredibly random. And I get that. Like, maybe that's the nature of today's era where you're literally matching with somebody at random on an app. Mm-hmm. Allie at least is like meeting people in real life and then it's like, oh, I'd like to take you to dinner. Like mm-hmm. things or have like sex that. With you but in I, a car wash. Yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I I do I, I don't know. I it makes while it is kind of realistic, it also just like it doesn't make for good television. But then I wonder how it's like one of those things where it's like if the show wasn't so focused or didn't have not so focused, didn't have a heightened focus on Allie yep. trying to like Allie's love life, it would be fine. I mean, like going back to Mary Tyler Moore, like she dated a revolving door of men and they would be on for like one or two episodes. Like I could not tell you really any of the guys that she dated. I don't think they ever lasted more than like a three episode arc. Sure. And it was like, that's fine. She's dating casually, whatever. I think it just, it doesn't 
work on Allie McBeal because, and I, I, I agree with what you said. It's like a vacuum because it's just like, you can't set this character up to be looking for love and then also being kind of like, well, all of the dates that she goes on are meaningless yep. and don't really amount to anything because we're still fixated on this one guy who is not like the yep. mountain that he should be. Yeah, it's, it, it's, yeah, I mean, you said it best. It, it is, it is unfortunate that the Billy thing doesn't really draw us in. If, if, if I found myself really invested in that relationship, we'd be having a different discussion because then I feel like then it's people that could come in from time to time, what have you. This is just, I, I mean, even the Jesse Martin, the, the Greg character who has a pretty long arc, I believe he's in like almost 10 episodes of the show. They don't have sex. They like, I'm, I'm amazed that this guy continues to date Allie. Yeah. This, this is months and months and months. He's been dating this person. They kissed. Hey, didn't they, didn't they have sex and then, oh, no, wait. No. Who am I thinking of that she? No, I don't know if they don't have sex. I thought they had sex on the. F- and it was a. No, I'm thinking like there's but... somebody that she had sex with. I thought it was him. She had sex with them and then left early the next morning because she was like, well, I thought you had to go away. And I thought he went away. They dated and then he comes back and he like, cause she meets him in that episode with the, the teacher who's dying. And she's like, Oh, you're back. Maybe they did. I don't, I mean, maybe you're right. I'm, but either way, it's but either, either no, but mm-hmm. either way they date for a little bit and then something, for some reason they, they're apart and then they get back together, which is like, why? He's just, he's, he's unbelievably understanding to a degree that you're just like, dude, she, I, what are you doing? Why, why are you subjecting yourself to this? I mean, did you watch the, the, the Haley Joel Osment episode? Did you see that one where he has cancer and he wants to sue God? That wait, that was him. Yes. Yeah. A little on the nose. Like wasn't I see dead people? Like wasn't the sixth sense like the same, same year? year? Yeah. Wow, big year for Haley Joe Osmond and Very dead people. For- <laughs> he wants to sue God and Ling helps him sue God. Right. And, and then, he, then dies. he dies. Yeah. Yeah. And Ling cries. And that's when we realize that Ling has like Ling emotions. is a human person. Yeah. It's I mean, the the show's absolutely crazy. Um it it it, it is I it's really funny because when I first started watching it because I want to do this episode with you. I was like, I'll watch a couple of these, but like, how many am I going to watch? And then I found myself like kind of getting into it and kind of getting pulled into sort of its weird little worldview. Um, and then I was just like, yeah, I guess I'm just going to keep watching Ellie McBeal until, you know, at least until Robert Downey Jr. shows up, um, you know, but then I- I'm certainly not going to watch the last season when she has a Hayden Pantieri shows up and is her, her long lost daughter and oof. Just bizarre. Like just reading everything about that, I'm like, how you really, really I mean, like they, jump they the just shark got, there? But they just got so screwed. Like Robert Downey Jr. Oh, screwed yeah. them so royally, and yeah, no, he didn't do it intentionally. But it's like, I mean, what are you going to do? I, you literally had a whole wrap up of the show. You know, I mean, I guess on some level, maybe they thought like. Maybe we can bring him back. 
maybe we can find a way to, I don't know. It just, it was just a big mess, but it's, it's, this is also, I also think it's worth noting with shows like this. And I think even David E. Kelly said this in the, uh, in the, um, uh, the oral history that I was reading, he talked about how when he pitched it, he said, it's only a five season show. And I remember the studio executive in this oral history was like, yeah, he was the first guy to pitch like a limited series. I'm like a limited series. It's <laughs> not 150 series. episodes. You fucking lunatic. Like that is not <laughs> limited series, but like, I, I do think that there's something to the idea that I think he knew I can only fly this high at this level of like whimsy and craziness for so long and to his credit, I think, I mean, the show probably would have kept going without him. Who the hell knows? But I just think that, like, you can't, you can't dial you can't. at 11 for forever. They're like 22 episodes every season. <laughs> Sometimes I, like, I remember with season one, I was like, season three. Like, like, season one, I was like, why is it taking me so long to get through this? And then I went <laughs> back and I was right. like, oh, because it's it's from the time when there were like, full season like a like a season of tv lasted from like october until may and i i would actually argue that i think we've we have swung too far in the other direction now yes now we're in this place where it's like six or seven episodes is a season of television and and listen i i I, yes yes It, it doesn't make any sense to me but i i i just think that um as a person who loved broadcast tv continues to love broadcast tv there's something inherently very comforting about a formula, about a thing that you hit play on and that you know that there's going to be a whole bunch of them and that it's, I, I just, I miss it. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. And I, I think that's probably part of the reason why I was like, I'm going to start watching this show and it's going to be something that I can turn on at night when I like, yep. like I know off. there's, yeah, I kind of can turn my brain off. I can keep it like at 50%. I can pay attention, but not too much attention. It's not, absolutely stupid but it doesn't make me think too hard and there's something comforting about how formulaic it is you know that nothing is going to like be radically different or groundbreaking or like shell shocking on a certain episode where it's like oh if I get up to like if I leave it on and I don't press pause and I like get up to like get a snack or something like I'm not gonna miss anything horribly different And I think the other thing too is like, I totally get the appeal of, and I miss appointment television. I miss like, and you only get it with reality shows now. Like, I I don't know, maybe that's part of the reason why I watch Real Housewives because it's a nice thing to anchor your week where you're like, every Tuesday, I'm going to watch these women be batshit crazy. What if I was like every Thursday, I can't wait, like, Every Thursday, I know that I'm going to do this. I know I'm going to have Allie McBeal and then Mm -hmm. the practice or like whatever that lineup was or like that lineup on Thursday nights on NBC that was like, your night was made. Yeah. Yeah. It was like, I miss that. You know, you're, you're speaking to something that I think that the streamers have really kind of missed the boat on. And I'm not entirely sure, technologically speaking, how they can do it. But I do feel like, the lack of knowing when an episode is going to drop of a show that you are following. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program. It's just, that that's a problem. Like, for instance, there are a whole bunch of shows that I do watch week to week, right? I mean, if it's if it was Hacks when season two was airing or For All Mankind, which I'm watching right now, I don't know when they drop, right? Like, I have a general sense of, like, what day of the week they might be on, but, like, that's a problem. Someone should have an app or someone should have a thing. I just think that making these streaming shows appointment television should be a priority, because to your point, I think we're losing the thread a little bit. And I mean, it worked. I think everyone was saying like, it really, really worked with Mayor of Easttown. Yes. Yes. Like, and that's the other thing where there are shows that I like, succession. Hack, like hacks, yeah. like succession. Um, or like, oh yeah, succession too. Like, but like hacks. And I guess maybe that's because Mayor and succession are on HBO and not HBO max. Yeah. But like, or wasn't Mare HBO Max? No, it was HBO. Oh, it was HBO. Okay. But like, so hacks or in just like that, or like every, I'm trying to think like what else, or like yellow jackets, like knowing that they always come out on the same day, but I have such a, like, it's just, it's just deeply ingrained behavior where I'm like, I know this is coming out on Thursday. I'm not going to sit down to watch it until like 8 p.m. I'm going to give it the respect of prime time. But what I hate is that, you know, they're trying to make, it's like a borderline where it's like, okay, we realize that not everything needs to be a binge drop, but also, you know, we'll build word of mouth hype if it's like week by week, but then it's not so much appointment television because then you're like, you're logging on and it's, your timeline is full of people talking about it who watched it at like 12.01 a.m., watched it at like 10 a.m. when they were in a meeting on mute. Like I missed, there was also some, there was something about television when it was appointment television, even before the internet and watching like live tweeting shows, like there was something that felt communal about it. 
where you knew other people were watching this with you and you knew you could come into work the next day or go to school the next day and you could talk about it or you could call your friend up as soon as it was as it was over and you would know that they had seen it because you were watching it at the the same time. And it's not like texting your friend. Hey, have you watched this yet? Have you watched this yet? Okay. Text me when you watch it. Okay. Wait, have you seen it? Oh, oops. Sorry. I spoiled something like. Well, I remember when, there's a disconnect. Uh, when um, and just like that was airing and you and Emmy and I were on a chain talking about it and you would be like, I haven't watched it. I'm watching it at eight o'clock when it should be watched, which I think is amazing. And I appreciate, you know, you, you having rules for yourself, but I think you're, but it's true. I think that it's just, it's a mess right now. I mean, there, there was a whole article yesterday, a Vulture article talking about with some showrunners about how they have no idea if their show is successful. The only metric they have right now is when they go on Twitter, if people are talking about it, then maybe they know if it's a hit. Oh, my God. It's a real problem. I mean, it's, it's, it's and I don't even mean just, don't even get me started on the fact that the studios should be telling us as writers how, how many times our episodes are being watched so they can pay us accordingly, but that's neither here nor there. I just think that we're at a place of just not knowing where the zeitgeist is. You know, you're, you're just talking about sort of water cooler television and how much fun it was to go to work on a Monday and be able to talk about whatever was on HBO the night before or, you know, to, to whatever it is. I remember being at school and going to school and talking about whatever episode of television aired the night before on whatever. Like, I think that that's exciting and we're missing that. And I think that Twitter, I guess, is some sort of a substitute, but it's not much of a substitute for anything. It's not. And I think it just, it's, I think it's interesting how watching television in the comfort of your own home is so the way it can be such an individual act Mm -hmm. and it can be isolating, but it can also be communal at the same time when you know that you're watching it with a bunch of other people and you can talk about it with another, a bunch of other people. And I think the way it is now, it's just further, closing in on the individualism of entertainment where it's I don't I don't know it just makes you feel like kind of even if you have somebody to talk about it with or even if you're sitting next to somebody watching it like you can't I don't know you can't know that like your friends have seen it you can't know that your coworkers have seen it like you just don't have the experience of like I'm watching this at the same time as like 5 million other people. Yep. There's, it just makes you feel more like alone, I guess, which is weird. It's a weird thing. It's a weird way to talk about something that is like ultimately something you consume pretty individualistically. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I think, I think what you're also tapping into as well is just, there's so much television now. You know what I mean? When, when Ali Beale was on, you know, we were talking about basically five or six networks at most, really. I mean, you know, it, it was just, it was a very different landscape, right? And what it also meant was that these shows just became so much more of a, of a lightning rod for popular culture, right? Like when something actually hit, so many more people were watching it. Now, because of the specificity of television, which is a good thing and a bad thing, a show like Hacks, which I imagine is watched by, let's be generous and say a couple million people, is 
uh, it can exist, right? I mean, a show that, that seems like it was made literally for Carrie Corrigan can exist, and that's great, right? And obviously, that's wonderful. Um, so there's pros and cons to the landscape that we live in today, which is that you can watch a show that feels like it's made so specifically for you and doesn't necessarily need 20 or 30 million people watching in order to keep getting made. But at the same time, because of that individualistic component, you feel a little alone. <laughs> like it's just it's right. this kind of push and pull. Yeah. Or it's like, or like you said, when you log into Twitter and you're kind of like, if you're a showrunner and that's the only way you know your show is working, it's there sometimes when I log onto Twitter and I'm like, why aren't more people talking about this? Yep. Yep. Like, so I think the other thing too is so many shows just get lost because there's so much TV. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I, I think, and then every now and then just sort of play devil's advocate, but I'll also say like something like The Bear, for instance, which is a show that truly I didn't even know existed until about three weeks ago, like a trailer dropped for it. FX dumped the whole ep- the whole run all at once. And I was like, oh, I guess they're just kind of burying this thing. Now, all anyone's talking about in my timeline is The Bear. And I'm just like, that's great. Like, I, I yeah, fantastic, right? Great show. Glad everybody's watching it, but it feels arbitrary. Like, how did that, all of a sudden hit a vein, I couldn't tell you. I think the thing too is though, with the bear at least, the majority of what I've seen people talking about, like it's memes. It is that one it's photo memes. of the lead that character. One, yes. That yeah. one photo memes and how hot he is. Memes and like <laughs> yes. memes and, and jokes that are like Yeah. jokes that are like, oh, every like every girly who's worked in a restaurant has definitely like had like had slept with, with him guy. one that had sex with this guy and then like cried in the walk-in <laughs> for like three days. Like every time you shared a shift with him, like cried in the walk-in. Like there's yeah. something It's true, probably. There's something about it where I'm kind of like I, I know what the show is about and I keep meaning to watch I think it. I really like it. Because I would, I, I, like having seen the trailer, I was like, oh, I really want to watch this. Mm-hmm. But there is something about the way it seems like a show's success kind of depends on its opportunity, like on its yes. meme ability. Because I couldn't tell you if I've read really anything about what the show is about. Mm-hmm. All I've seen people saying, like, the discourse. Yeah. Is not like this is this show is finely written or really realistic or I can't believe, like this character is so wonderful. Like everything I'm seeing is like a joke about it. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I think that also it should be said, too, that, you know, one of the, the, the curse and blessing of a Twitter, too, is that you're curating the people that you're seeing, right? right? So it's an echo chamber of your own thoughts, most likely, right? Right. So basically, you know, you'll have a situation with the bear, for instance, where like a lot of the people I see talking about it, I follow a lot of TV writers, I follow a lot of TV critics and what have you. So there has been discourse about the show mixed in with the meme that you're talking about as well. But I also feel like the meme ability of things can break the other way too. I mean, marriage story was memed up the wazoo, but I'm not necessarily sure that that helped marriage story. Right. I mean, I don't think that, I, I mean, do you think it helped marriage story that the, the meme of him punching the wall and it just being a million, you're just like, I don't, I, I mean, what are we doing here? Like we seem, I don't know, lost. I think for people who are not as in, I think it reached people who are like, never going to watch a Noah Baumbach movie. 
probably watched it. <laughs> Fine. Fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I think that, you know, now I wish and hope that Ally McBeal does get rebooted because I would love to see the discourse around Ally McBeal. I would love to see oh, Ally McBeal get... I can't wait. <laughs> it'll be like, it'll be the end just like that discourse. It'll just be like, what sure. are we doing here? Like, yeah. Yeah. oh, this woman is so horrible. Oh, this is so cringe. All this dialogue is so cringe. Oh, they're yeah, forcing... I still would love to see They're forcing watched. diversity. Like... Yeah. Which also yeah. the show is pretty diverse for 1998. Like, yeah, I agree. I, I think it's, I, I, I agree with what you were saying earlier. Um, as we wrap up, I'll just say that I feel like, you know, you mentioned earlier about how you're surprised this show hasn't had a renaissance or a reevaluation. I'm a little surprised by that as well. To some degree, I think part of that has to do with Hulu. <laughs> I don't think as many people have Hulu. I don't think that Hulu I think that the rewatches, quote unquote, of of shows that are on Hulu just don't go as deep, right? Like, the, I just don't think they oh, yeah. have as many subscribers. I mean, I don't think it's a surprise, for instance, when Friends is on Netflix or Friends is on HBO Max. I mean, even this ER renaissance. The nanny. Happened, the nanny. <laughs> sure, sure. The nanny yeah. on HBO Max. Like, yeah. yeah. I think that these these... I think the Hulu part of it is a problem. If for instance, Ally McBeal went up on Disney plus tomorrow, which for all we know, Disney plus could swallow Hulu tomorrow and all of their stuff could get swallowed onto Disney plus. I think it would change the metrics a little bit, but all this is to say that I would love to see Gen Z watch Ally McBeal (laughs) because I'd love to hear their thoughts. (laughs) That's, that's, that's I, there are certain members of Gen Z that I would love to hear their thoughts. And then there are a lot that I'm like, I don't know if we need your thoughts. Well, would, I would love to hear your sister's thoughts. How about that? I'd love to hear your younger sister's thoughts on, on Allie McKeel. She's Gen Z millennial borderline. <laughs> and because she's- she has two millennial older sisters, she's like, I, she's like, I code of like, she's like, I, she wouldn't say like I codify. She was like I identify as like she didn't like hasn't said it outright, but she said something where she was like, "I don't really feel like either, but I definitely feel closer to millennial than like." Interesting. Like All she right. saw the Minions movie. She uh-huh. saw Rise of Gru over the sure. weekend, and sure. she, I was like, "Were there any any gentle Minions at your screening?" And she's like, "What?" And I had to explain the whole thing. She's like, really? "I know you think that's." She was like, "I know you think that's a funny play on like gentlemen who came to see Minions." And I was like, no, I didn't nope. make, she's like, but it's not funny. And I, she's like, that wasn't a very like good wordplay. And I was like, I didn't make it up. I was like, I had to explain the whole thing to her and like show her the TikToks. And she's like, oh yeah. The, like, I get that. That's like technically she's like the borderline. She's like, yeah, I, that that's fully I, I, Gen I mean, Z. I your do not. With your sister is, I mean, tremendous. I'm a big <laughs> fan. Uh, just the, the interactions that you post periodically are hilarious i genuinely if there's a way that you could get her to watch the pilot of ali mcbeal and let me know what she thinks i would just because i'd love to hear a younger person's perspective okay if you can no pressure i'm no, just I, I will i will absolutely try okay I, tr- I try to recommend recommend media to her all the time and a lot of times it's like oh, carrie you know, I don't watch things. Me- like, this is the one thing she says that's very Gen Z. You know, I don't watch things me before I was born. Which is a lie. But like, What year she was she born? 96. Jesus Christ. <laughs> Jesus Christ. That, that's... I'd be like, Casey, you've seen The Lion King? 
So you have absolutely seen movies made. I love that you call bullshit on your sister constantly. I mean, I get it though. I mean, I, I mean, I don't, I don't have any siblings, but I completely, I I think I understand. It comes with the job description of oldest sister, just like bust their chops over and over again. I, I mean, truly would love to hear, uh, and our listeners, if anyone uh, is friends with someone in Gen Z, I'd love to hear what a younger generation thinks of this, of this show, because I'll say this. I, my roommate who is uh, in her early thirties had never seen Ally McBeal. I forced her to watch an episode and she was like, what the fuck is this? Like she, it literally made her, she was just like, how did this ever fucking exist? That's the thing. Yeah. That's why, That's why I love it. Miracle. I'm like, how was this on network television? <laughs> I, agree. I agree. That's why I would love to hear, you know, uh, a, a Gen Z perspective if possible. But all that being said, Carrie, thank you for coming on and talking about Ali McBeal. Thank you for having me and being insane as usual. I keep saying like really absolutely deranged things on this show and you keep asking me to come back. So I, I don't know. Are you I kidding? <laughs> You're, first of all, nothing you said is deranged. Uh, and this is, I mean, truly there are shows and I, I say this, you know, with, with, with nothing, but obviously love for your perspectives. That's why, like, this is a, when I started thinking about Ali McBeal, I was like, I want to hear Carrie's thoughts on it <laughs> because I do feel as though like there, I, I think there are certain people, certain people that have very specific sort of perspectives on media. You have a very specific voice on media. I, and I've, I, you know, I've said this to you in the past, but genuinely I think about like, you love these movies and and this sort of culture that's way before you were born, um, which I think speaks volumes about you as a person. But I also just feel like, you know, you, your the life you're living, your experiences in Ally McBeal felt like a it felt like they needed to, <laughs> they needed to come out on mic. So I appreciate you uh, giving us that opportunity. Thank you for <laughs> letting me letting me go off. <laughs> Well, it was it was uh, wonderful as always. Thanks.